and welcome to part three of our review and retrospective of the Star Trek movie series. So in parts one, we covered the original series movies following the cast of Kirk and the original Enterprise crew. In part two, Robert and I looked at the Next Generation films. So now we are finally here, the main event. We are looking at the Kelvin Timeline movies. So I am your host, David Wright, from the Great White North of Canada. And uh, joining me... In the black corner, wearing the black shorts, returning champion, Robert Winfrey. How do you do? I'm pretty good. I've busted out my pickaxe, my shovel, my black trench coat, my black hat, and I will be performing your burial services for this sequence of movies this particular episode. Because, oh boy. And in the white corner, wearing no pants, Mark <laughs> Radulich. How do you do? I'm doing okay, Dave. I'm happy to be on this program once again. Let me just start off by saying I showed my kids the first one of these, Star Trek from 2009. My son threw a tantrum mid-movie yelling out, I'm bored, when is this going to be over? And I thought, well, I think that says it all about this trilogy. Yeah, completely missed its target audience. <laughs> Though, I don't know, maybe your son was a bit too old. <laughs> yeah, my, my daughter had a kind of a similar, not bored, but She's just kind of like, eh, this isn't really her thing. It's sometimes hard to peg down what's going to nail their interest. Um, I know the more action there is in a movie, and I think they would have done better with Star Trek Beyond than they did with the original Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek d goes out of its way to, as it should, you know, do a lot of character building and relationship building before you get to, you know, some real serious action. And if you have no attachment to the franchise, to the IP, and you're just in it for the action, I could see where it would irritate people. Like I said, I think if I had Star them off with Beyond, uh, they'd have done better. Did we ever figure out what they were trekking Beyond? The Great Unknown. I was going to say quality cinema, but okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you wanted a serious answer to that question. You say that like my answer wasn't serious. <laughs> All right. I pretty much buried that movie when we reviewed it. I'm happy to do so again. That's what I'm excited about here. The only one I haven't reviewed of this trilogy is the first one. Jeff and I did the second one, which is actually up in the archives now. And then you and I did Beyond, which may or may not be in the archives by the time this airs. So to begin, where last we left off, Nemesis was a complete disaster, and that basically killed Star Trek on the big screen for many, many years. And on the small screen, the CEO of uh, CBS decided, I don't like this sci-fi crap, cancel it. Oddly enough, that was only the second worst thing he ever did to Star Trek. But eventually, Hollywood decided, let's dig out what we got left in the catalog to remake and shovel out for the masses, and it was Star Trek's turn, so they enlisted J.J. Abrams... Alex Kurtzman and Robert o. Orsi to put their limited powers together and come up with a Star Trek film. And what we got was Star Trek. Just Star Trek. 2009. So, on to the summary. So in the future's future, Stargo Supernova destroying the Romulan Empire. A Romulan ship travels back in time, kills Kirk's father on the USS Kelvin right when he's being born, and we find out that the captain of this ship has sworn revenge on the Federation and the Vulcans for... The events that led to his plant's destruction, they were unable to save it in time. But using the same technology that they were going to use to save his world, he can now create black holes using a substance called red matter. So he uses the red matter to destroy Vulcan, making Spock very upset. Kirk wants to pursue Nero's ship. Spock wants to return to the fleet. Kirk, at the behest of old future Spock, gets young Spock to get overly emotional, rendering him incapable of command. Kirk and his crew sneak on board Nero's ship. Rescue Captain Pike, who's been captured. Young Spock steals future Spock's ship. 
destroying Nero's ship's ability to blow up the Earth. They set off the red matter reaction, sucking up Nero's ship into the void, saving the universe. Spock, Kirk, and Enterprise crew go all forward into the franchise. So, Mark, let's start with you, since you didn't get to review it originally. What did you think of Star Trek 2009? I think what I thought about it at the time when people were discussing it contemporaneously, that it felt like somebody who had a very shallow understanding of what Star Trek was. It felt like the way a lot of movies today, especially prequels, tend to deal with things is like, you know, like in the Star Wars universe. We don't need to know the origin of these minute throwaway lines and details. They were a part of the bigger thing and we liked it that way and we, we liked the overall story they were telling. And then with this Star Trek reboot, it was, we can't just say he beat the Kobayashi Maru as part of this bigger thing like we talked about in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We actually have to show it to you now, taking all the imagination of what it might have been from the fans right out there, and it's this really stupid thing that happens where he's eating an apple during it. You know, things like that. We can't just know that James Kirk inherently thinks outside the box, and in doing so will sometimes break the rules for the greater good. The, the greater, greater good. good. Um, which is a big theme, you know, throughout the Star Trek shows and movies about what is the greater good. The greater good. Stop that! To whom does it serve? And here... It's like, oh, well, his dad died on the day that he was born, and he was raised by a shitty stepfather, and he crashed a car, to the sound of the Beastie Boys. In Wrath of Khan, the Kobayashi Maru is used to set up an aspect of Kirk's character in that he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario, and at the end of the film, he has to deal with being in the no-win scenario, so it comes full circle. Right. In this film, it's just there because it's a thing people know about, and it's an excuse for how Kirk met Spock. Right, it's it's like in Solo, you know, in Star Wars, Han's bragging about the speed of the Millennium Falcon, and he says it's the ship that made the Kessel Run in 1.21 gigawatts, or whatever it is, he says. 50 parsecs, which is a measurement of distance, not time. Yeah. But it sounds spacey and cool. We, we know, George Lucas is an idiot. It actually makes sense if you think about it. He's not bragging about the Falcon's speed, he's bragging about its handling. Sure. Um, and then we have to see it in solo, and it becomes, you know, and it be, like they have to make a big thing out of it. And here's the thing I've said this about a lot of movies of late. It's like people watch them, they don't know why they're popular, they don't know why they resonate with people, they don't know why it hits the buttons on people emotionally that they do. Instead, they just was like, ooh, space stuff. Kobayashi Maru, Kirk, no win scenario. Like, ugh, okay. So what you get is somebody's really shallow impression of what a Star Trek movie is supposed to be. And then you have who my daughter affectionately calls Buzzkill, Spock, you know, who's played fine by Zachary Quinto. I don't have a problem with the performance. Chris Pine's a little too smarmy for me. I, I think about Kirk in the original series, and I think about Kirk in the films, and Chris Pine just feels like he only knows... Everyone just seems to focus on that one personality aspect of Kirk, and that is all he's playing. Zachary Quinto sort of trying to figure out, am I human? Am I a robot? What am I? What is the nature of my being? He, he does a fairly good job of wrestling with it. But my problem with him in this film is it's like they want to build animus towards each other so that later on they can be friends and thus there is this character arc there is this journey but i think they went overboard with spock and they made him way unlikable to the point where by the end of it i don't really care that they're friends but mark don't you understand his romance with uhura is supposed to be a uh yeah no that that's terrible 
Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was the logic. They made him super unlikable. They made they made Chris Pine very one-dimensional and shallow. And everybody else is just kind of there. And so all that's so it's just like, okay, well, this doesn't feel like Star Trek. These don't feel like the characters that I know and love. This sounds like somebody doing a bad cover song. And then all that you've got left is what action there is in the movie. Uh, I mean, you know, J.J. Abrams... J.J. Abrams is yet another director who I think he needs to be paired up with a solid storyteller because I think he does visuals very well. I, I think all three movies look great. They're very colorful. The action, I think, is mostly readable. I just feel like he's another one who doesn't understand people. He, he's the rich man's Brett Ratner. Yeah, and so it's just a two-hour series of images and special effects with nothing behind them. And if that, that's all you want, you know, if you're easily, if you're Ariel Hawani and easily wowed, sure, I can see where that would work for people. If you're actually into film, these movies fall apart easily on scrutiny and wait till we get to Into Darkness. I'm going to be a little bit more positive than Mark on a couple of points. I agree a little bit that this version of Kirk, it doesn't quite capture the full multifacetedness of Kirk as a character. That said, Chris Pine does a very good job with what he's given. I think he was just not given what you would want him to be given in this case. Yeah, he plays the character that was written. Yes. This sort of horny frat boy, slightly douchey Kirk. To be clear, I'm not saying Chris Pine's a bad actor. I don't know if that's what you you think I said. No, 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 no. I, this is just, you referenced specifically this character. And I just wanted to be abundantly clear that I don't have a problem with Pine. I thought his acting was good. I thought the writing was poor. Kirk in this timeline is the most changed character due to the events of the time travel. His father was killed the day he was born, so he was not raised by George Kirk. He was yeah, like, raised by a series of crappy stepdads. So yeah, he's going to be a different character than the Kirk that we know from the original timeline. Plus, we're looking at him at a much younger age, sort of still in the Academy, than when we meet Kirk in the original series, where he's more of a seasoned starship captain. Which still doesn't explain why they let him, like, captain the ship, but there you go. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's like, like, I don't think you'll find many 18-year-old uh, starship captains, or even just captains in general right now. Well, when you consider especially that captain is the naval... It... This is one of those things that has to be properly understood. If you look at the the naval um, rank hierarchy, captain is the uh, army equivalent of a full bird colonel. The only thing left is admiral, which is in, in the various degrees, so a general. You don't find 18-year-old captains. You don't find 18-year-old colonels. It's just not a thing. <laughs> Outside the Navy, yeah, captain is not that big of a deal. It's uh, more of a mid-level rank than a high-level rank. Given that Star Trek does take its ranking structure very expressly from the Navy, then yeah, that's why it's appropriate. I agree it's kind of an issue, but Chris Pine does a fine job with the character that is written for him because he's a quality actor. Um, really, the stars of this, sh this particular movie are not our big two. Now, if you look at the big two, you, know, you have Kirk and Spock. That's the relationship. Those are the driving characters, yada, yada, yada. The stars of this particular movie come in two forms, one being Carl Urban and his portrayal of Bones. Well, actually, I think you mean DeForest Kelly's soul, which is channeled through Carl Urban. Yes. 
Like, it's that good a performance. He gets the voice right, and DeForest Kelly had a very, very unique voice and cadence, and I don't know how much study and practice Carl Urban had to go through to get that right, but boy, did he nail it. So kudos, he did, and unsurprisingly, Simon Pegg as Scotty is the other unabashed highlight of this particular film. It's kind of funny that in both cases, Scotty was never actually played by a Scotsman. Like James Doohan is Canadian, Simon Pegg is English, though his wife is actually from Glasgow, so she actually helped him a lot work on his uh, his accent. Those two, and a lot of the other support staff, is I mean, Zoe Saldana is fine-ish as Uhura. I think she was horribly underwritten. Whoever wrote her just did like, hey, black communications officer. I, I will give them credit that they gave her more to do than Michelle Nichols had, who mm-hmm. was basically just push buttons and, you know, say what the computer says. But that's the thing, is she's sassy black girl with more to do. That's her character. Yeah, we could say she might be a bit of a trope, but still, they've, they've added more to her character than, than she's had before. At least when it came to Nichelle Nichols, they had the excuse of, you know, the 70s. Oh yeah, for, for its time. That was, that was pretty impressive. But, you know, again, th- this is Star Trek 2009, not Star Trek 1969 or whatever. Yeah. I liked those, um, oh, what was the other one? Guy I don't actually care for, but I thought did a decent job here. What's his face? Um, can never remember the actor's name. Well, there's Anton Yelchin, who's actually Russian. No, no, it's it's not him. Yelchin I like. Oh, the one who plays Sulu. Yeah, is it John Cho? I think. Yeah, that's it. Thought he did a perfectly acceptable job as Sulu. Yelchin as uh, Chekhov. He and Carl Urban both, I think, did the best job of nailing who those characters used to be. Uh, whereas, slightly by contrast. I think Simon Pegg did a better job of taking Scotty and, while he is fundamentally the same character, also twisting enough of the presentation to make him somewhat uniquely this movie's. You know, this is very much not James Doohan's Scotty. A lot of the support staff does a really good job in the acting department, and I think they deserve some kudos for that. The story is not good. Part of this is actually brought on by Star Trek's wild inconsistency with its time travel. I'm not going to say anything bad about Leonard Nimoy. Just, I'm the wrong person to ask to do that. (laughs) The biggest problem with this movie, I think, is that if you don't have some kind of emotional attachment to this franchise already, there's not a lot here for you. If you're not interested in seeing these characters play off of each other slightly reimagined, if you don't get a little bit uh, emotional when the first thing that old Spock says to Kirk when they run into each other because of plot happenstance slash armor is, I have been and always will be your friend, if that doesn't trigger something in you, then there's nothing here for you, and that's a fault of whoever wrote this movie, not a fault of you as a viewer. Eric Bana's Nero, I could kind of take or leave. He He's there. He has one good moment. And I want to make sure that I do give that particular bit credit. When he's interrogating Pike, and Pike mentions Romulus is fine, there's nothing wrong with it, and Nero very violently reacts, don't tell me that, I saw it be destroyed. That's the one moment where Nero actually is able to channel a bit of emotional trauma into what's going on. The rest of the time, he just kind of he just kind of exists. Probably my favorite Nero moment is when he initially hails the Enterprise. You know, like, this is Christopher Pike, captain of the USS Enterprise. Hi, Christopher, I'm Nero. Yeah, th- he has a couple of really funny lines. That's not bad. Like, Nero is not a, you know, captain in a military. He is a mining ship captain, so he, he doesn't quite have that military deportment and formality to it. He's just a guy doing his job, albeit in a freakishly overpowered ship, hell-bent on revenge. Well, there's a thing about that. It kind of bothered me a little bit until I thought about it. You would be amazed 
if, if you take, you know, the mining equipment of 2021 and then send it back however many hundred years to then be used as military paraphernalia, it would be shockingly effective. If you take the average excavator or earth mover and throw them back into, say, the American Civil War, there's not a whole lot they can do. <laughs> Again, a couple of bulldozers would have made short work of most of Napoleon's army. So I'm willing to go along with technological advancements being enough to make a slightly refitted piece of labor equipment serviceable in a military capacity if you go back in time far enough. My, my only uh, criticism of that is the way that he fights is not using mining equipment. It's using photon torpedoes, disruptors, like actual weaponry. Like that ship is armed to the teeth. He only uses the mining laser on planets, which makes sense. It's a mining laser. Yeah, it's badly explained, as is most everything in this movie. I was willing to go along with a little bit of that as far as that goes. I just want to go ahead and say, like, oh, you're going to be a little bit more positive. I think we mostly agree. I, I just didn't bring up the other actors. I 100% agree with Ant Anton Yelchin and, um, what do you say is what, the guy who plays Sulu. Yeah, John Cho. I think the supporting cast does either an adequate to good job. Unfortunately, what was once kind of an ensemble cast, and, you know, they, they, I, I know you hate Star Trek 4, and like every time I bring it up, we can't have a civil conversation about it, but Star, Star Trek 4, they divide everybody into like little pairings and they gave everybody a lot to do, and you get to see a lot of personality and have fun with these characters. To one degree or another, you get some of that with some of the other movies. You get a little bit less of that with Star Trek 3. All I said, a lot of it with Star Trek 4. 5 is not worth talking about. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Five is William Shatner's magnum opus. That's a pretty pretty damning insult to William Shatner. It's a bad joke based on something that Mark shared on Facebook. Also, I know, five is not Shatner's magnum opus. That's much more three. Uh, five is... Yeah, we, we buried that pretty thoroughly. <laughs> and I think with six, there's less to do because they give so much to Kim Cattrall. And, you know, the other actors they brought in to play villains in the movie and whatnot, there's just not enough screen time for everybody. But... I feel like, again, when they wrote this movie, when they developed it, it was, we need to, you know, we need to get these characters on screen doing stuff, but we really don't care about them. All anyone cares about is Kirk and Spock, Kirk and Spock, Kirk and Spock, and to a lesser degree, McCoy. And it's like, okay, but that's not, A, that's not Star Trek, B, that's not even true. You know, if you, if you talk to people who are fans of the old Star Trek, people love Sulu, and they love Chekhov, and they love Uhura. You know, it's not just the, it's not just the, you know, the Captain Kirk show. And again, if you watch the old series, just like any other television series, yeah, Kirk was a major focal point, as was Spock, as was DeForest Kelly, but... Other characters got their moment, you know, got their moments to shine on that show. Ahura wasn't just sitting in the background punching buttons. She got stuff to do. And it's just like that the movie had a chance to really elevate all of those characters and give them stuff to do. And in some cases, I think they succeeded. Like they, they gave Sulu an action sequence. And obviously we talked about Ahura where they made her on-screen presence more focal because she's attached to Spock. Not really a character in her own right. And can we talk for just a minute about how stupid that romantic pairing is? I don't even think, like, the bevy of slash fiction writers out there had ever decided that Uhura and Spock was a good pairing. And those people will pair any characters. Here's the thing. They wrote it in because they were like, well, the only other character that's going to get a lot of on-screen time is Spock. She has to be with one of these guys. They can't put her with Kirk because they can't. So the only other point, So by default, the only one left was Spock. It didn't matter that it made no sense. 
like I like the idea of focusing a bit more on Spock's human side and you know like the struggle between him wanting to be a logical Vulcan but also dealing with his inherent human side emotions and and since this is somewhat of a reboot I, I was okay with that. Was it necessary for the story? No, not really. They, they could have still had Uhura being on the ship as their communications officer because she's the best xenolinguist in the academy. That would have still worked. It, it did feel a bit tacked on and forced in. They gave her a good bit to do in Into Darkness. And it's so funny because it almost sounds like she's fighting for time in the middle of the movie. Like, it's very self-aware. She's like, I speak Klingon, let me speak Klingon. Which brings me to another problem I have with Kirk is they keep wanting to give him all of these awards and promotions and, and you know, and recognize that he's this great captain. His go-to mode, and it wasn't like this in the show or the movies, his go-to is blow things up with guns. He wants to fight everything, which I guess would be an interesting character trait if he'd actually, like, learn a lesson, have an arc, have some sort of movement as a character. I was thinking about, um, I can't remember if it's Deep Space Nine or The Next Generation, where Worf moves into command. Uh, Deep Space Nine. Okay, you know the episode I'm talking about, where he's barking orders at people, he's not understanding why he's not getting the respect of the crew, and I think it's O'Brien who says to him, it's like, Worf, people are specialists here. There's things that they know how to do. They're going to have the answers you're looking for if you just let them do their jobs. Yeah, it's the ship's been damaged and everyone's compartmentalized and Worf's stuck in engineering and he's having to deal with engineers instead of bridge officers. So his usual approach of just yell at them and expect them to make it happen doesn't work. And O'Brien just explains, look, they're engineers, they're problem solvers. You give them a problem and just let them go and sort it out and they'll get back to you when they've got it figured. And so if they would apply that to Kirk here, I'd have less of a problem with him wanting to punch his way through problems. The problem was we never get there. Occasionally, a character will just yell a solution back at him, but he's not looking for it. He's, his, uh, uh, most of the time, the cast is having to hold him back from wanting to punch things. And it's like, it, you know, it's, this is not an appealing Kirk character. Yeah, I'm not too big on this particular interpretation of Kirk. I mean, it gets a lot better in the third film, but mm -hmm. we'll get to that when we get to that. Like, I, I look at this film as about on par with Star Trek Three in that it exists to just do a piece of franchise maintenance. Star Trek Three, the whole point of the film was get Spock back. The whole point of this film is establish an alternate timeline so we can make our own Star Trek films. And I think it would have done a lot better just to say, we're just pushing the magic reset button. This is a new timeline. Forget everything you know about the original Star Trek. We're just doing our own thing here. You know, it, it doesn't tie into any of that. This is the Kurtzman Orsi Abrams take on Star Trek. God help us all. Here's the problem. What people like is Star Trek in the middle of the five-year mission. That's what people like. That is what made the franchise popular. That is what people go to. The other thing people like, Star Trek The Next Generation, which is them doing the five-year mission. You know, if you go to IHOP and you order uh, bacon and eggs, they don't walk you into the back of the kitchen and show you how the bacon is slaughtered off the pig and how the, and how the eggs are taken from the chickens and made into your eggs. They just bring you a plate of eggs. That's what you came there for. That's what you want. Yeah, it's the International House of Pancake, not the International House of Burgers. Well, not only that, but if you, you go to a restaurant for a plate of food, you're not really interested in how the food got to the plate. Some people are, but we're talking about a very niche group of people. So most people just want what they order. So with Star Trek, 
most people want the Kirk and Spock that already kind of have the relationship. And they're off doing things and they're having fun adventures. And the story should be in the fun adventures, not in, well, how did Kirk and Spock meet? And what is the beginning of Starfleet like? And yada, yada, yada. It, this is the same problem with the Star Wars movies that were intermittent between the post-Skywalker trilogy. Which is, they're mining minor details for movies that nobody gives a shit about. And the only reason why people like Rogue One is because Darth Vader slaughters a whole bunch of rebels at the end and looks awesome doing it. You know, and it's a big shoot 'em up movie. I, I defend a lot more about Rogue One than just that, but... I'm giving a very flip answer to move on with my point, but for the most part, them focusing on these minute details and making whole big stories out of them that people don't care about didn't really work for Lucasfilm, and I think that is why this trilogy of movies didn't really work for Star Trek. It was like, you're not doing the thing people like about Star Trek. You're focusing on minor details from backstories that nobody gives a shit about. I assure you, no one cares that much about the story behind Han Solo's little gold dice. <laughs> well, if I was to put on my you know, Hollywood executive hat at the time, you know, like Batman Begins came out and was a film about where Batman came from, and then they did Casino Royale shortly after that, which was basically James Bond Begins. So if I'm now going to do a Star Trek movie, then yes, let's do Star Trek Begins, How Kirk Met Spock. Right, but you, you're, you're saying the same thing that I said, just differently. Yeah. Which is, you're not thinking about what people like about this particular property. You're applying the same, you're applying the same algorithms and formulas to a property that doesn't really accept that algorithm or formula. Oh, I, I agree. I understand why they went with that direction. But yeah, as, as a fan of the franchise, I don't care about going back to Kirk and Spock. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Kirk and Spock and the original series for laying the groundwork for Star Trek and for the great things that was done during that show's run. But yeah, I don't, I don't need to know how everyone got together. They're on a semi-military ship. They were assigned to be there. Moving on. There's also a, a missed opportunity here, and I don't think anyone who, anyone who worked on this is smart enough to realize what they were doing to have really made a, an effective use of this, because they, they do it more with Into Darkness, but then they sharply pull away from it. And I actually think, like, if they had really played around with it, that what this should have been was how the Mirror Mirror universe got created. Like, that's what I think this should have been. Because at, at one point in Into Darkness, Scotty's, and I know I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but Scotty's like, are we explorers or are we a military operation? Because I thought we were explorers. And it's like the best line of the movie. And that's certainly the direction the that the Federation is going in. And of course, they resolve the movie and they turn sharply away from it back to exploration. But I actually think it would be fascinating that because of this altered timeline, because of what Nero does, had they gone into the future and what we find out is this actually is the Mirror Mirror Universe. This is how the Mirror Mirror Universe came to be. This is how the Federation became the Empire. I think that would have been fascinating. Well, that joke's kind of been made about like Discovery and Picard is like these shows are so dark and depressing and the characters are so amoral that it would make a lot more sense if it was, was just the Mirror Universe all along. Mm -hmm. But that still doesn't work with the way that it's shown. Like you don't have the Terran Empire in this, it's still the Federation. But yeah, you know, I, I get the joke. <laughs> Yeah, another thing I'd like to look at for for this series is uh, the sort of look of, of the show. Or obviously, it's a, an updated takeoff of the original series look, but uh, I personally find I'm, I'm not too big on the set design. Like, quality-wise, you know, everything's good. Everything's high quality. But I found, like, you know, the bridge of the Enterprise looks like an Apple store, and the rest of the <laughs> ship looks like a brewery. Yeah. Mostly because it was filmed in a Budweiser brewery. Like, I get that. But but knowing what a brewery looks like, I don't feel, you know, they're not in a starship. They're in a brewery. Like, I know what these things are. It doesn't sell me on on the universe itself. All of which is perpetually offset by lens flare. I like my space futures to be clean. 
Yeah, the lens flare. I mean, everyone has made the joke about lens flare to here and back again. Uh, but to go back to the bridge again, I just found it even without the lens flares, it was such a noisy design. There's just blinking lights and displays. I never knew where anything was on the bridge or where anyone was. It was just this big white and blue mesh of stuff. It, it didn't have that sort of clear geography to, to the bridge layout. I, I don't disagree with your criticism of it, but can I say that I liked it? Like, it's the one thing, you know, like I said, from a purely visual standpoint, all of this movie works for me. The the action works for me and the set design works for me. I hate the, post, the post-apocalyptic dirty future. Same. I like my futures to be clean and sanitized. You, sir, are you, know, I, you said it looked like an Apple store. I like the Apple store look. That's what I want my future to be. Yeah, I'm a lot less hard on them for the Apple Store look than the brewery look. <laughs> you know, in 2009, the future looks like an Apple Store. But then they can't have Simon Pegg in a tube, which is funny. It's one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, why did they put a water slide through engineering? Like, I don't... <laughs> I mean, apparently it's a coolant system, but... You know what? You mentioned it looks like an Apple Store. The internals of this are designed about as well as the internals of a Mac as well. Like, they're just... They don't make sense. But yeah, I, I get it. The iPhone was pretty new at this time. Apple was the aesthetic that you would go with. Again, I'm, I'm mostly okay with that. I just thought, tone it down a little bit. Let me actually understand where everything is on the bridge. Like one of the nice things about a lot of the ships in Star Trek, the original series Enterprise looked a bit crappy because it was the 60s and they had no money. It was just, that was what they could do. But you, you look at like the Enterprise D, you know, Voyager. Like th these are ships where I'd kind of, I'd like to be on them. Like, they, they feel more homey and comfortable. Everything is clearly laid out. Whereas with the Kelvin designs, I'm, I'm not really sure. It just feels a bit too sterile. It's style over substance. It feels like a showroom. At no point when you're spending time in the Enterprise does it actually feel like anyone spends time in the Enterprise. This is not a location that feels lived in or used by real people at any point. Yeah, like in The Next Generation, the Enterprise is like a deep space exploratory vessel it's a giant city ship in space and yeah the interior looks like a cruise ship slash hotel because people are going to be spending their years at a time only on this ship that makes sense whereas yeah this enterprise doesn't feel homely again it feels made more to look cool than anything else as opposed to be like a functional space where people live and work and you know that's what they were going with for the narada nero ship it was pretty much the polar opposite, where this is a ship where occupational health and safety does not exist. Darn right. There are no handrails. I think, like, some of the rooms, they have, like, water. Dripping. Like, on, on the floor. <laughs> standing water. Not, not just dripping. Like, they're, they're wading through water, whereas it's like, geez, like, one short circuit and everyone's dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's an alien ship. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. But Look, uh, the Romulans don't design good ships. The Warbirds, those were, were pretty slick. Not my favorite design, but... Again, okay. pretty slick. They don't design good civilian ships. They're, all their budget for the Romulan Empire clearly went into the military, leaving anyone doing stuff like this to just slipshod together whatever they can, and they just need the water for ballast. Which is funny, because you don't actually need ballast in space. There's no gravity. I know, like, if you read the companion co prequel comic book, which, again, it's not part of the film, so it doesn't count, they explain a lot more into, you know, why the technology looks so different in this world. Uh, apparently the Narada was just a normal mining ship, but the Romulans were experimenting with captured Borg technology, so they basically used repurposed Borg nanoprobes to turn it into this giant ship of death. Okay, fine, but again, that's not in the film, so how do we know? 
Last point on, on the look of the show is just the external look of the Enterprise, which I, I'd say 90% I quite like. It's a, it's a good visual update to the classic design. Uh, my only real issues are the warp nacelles. I just found them to be way too big at the front compared to the back and uh, too close together horizontally. It just kind of throws the look of the ship off. That classic Constitution class design is just so well balanced and looks so good and iconic from every single direction that, you know, to, to, to just change one of those dimensions, it, it looks off. I'll defer to you on that one. Uh, never really struck me one way or the other, but I'm sure now that I, now that you've mentioned it, I'll never be able to unsee it. Sorry about that. Yeah, you're fine. That's not on you. That's on the production design. Again, it's not terrible. And I know Abrams said he wanted the Enterprise to look like a hot rod, which which is fine, though. I think the Enterprise E looks a lot more like a hot rod than, than anything else. Boy, does it. But we've already sung that ship's praises in the Next Generation film podcast. What I think makes Star Trek so popular, like if you want to get to the central core, which this film doesn't quite accomplish, it gets a lot of the surface level stuff. Tribbles, red shirt dies, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a blah, blah, blah. Spock talks about logic. Kirk sleeps with green alien women. It hits all that sort of surface level stuff, but you know it doesn't really get into the deep what made this franchise works. And in... In my opinion, that's more like the exploration of humanity, of life, both like on the big, grand, political, philosophical scale, and also just the small minutia of what it is to be alive and what we experience in our lives, like the more personal character stuff. Whereas this is just more, we're hitting the reset button, guys. We're making something new. And, and I appreciate that's what it needs to do to set up its new franchise. So when judging this film, I kind of cut it some slack for, okay, you're just, you're setting up the new status quo for Star Trek. You had to devote this film to doing that. So we'll wait for and see if you can kind of tell a, a story with a bit of depth in the next one, which brings us to Into Darkness. I'm with you in the sense that I would maybe cut this movie a little bit more slack if the follow-ups hadn't been what they are. Well, here's the thing. I think with this one, people were, were very forgiving. They were like, well, you know, it's kind of like with the first prequel. I don't think people hated the the, the first Star Wars prequel a lot. You know, and this and, it, and it, history kind of repeats itself with The Force Awakens, where everyone's like, that first chapter, if it doesn't wow your pants off, everyone's like, well, we'll forgive it. There's more to come. Yeah. It's that second chapter that if it doesn't hit it out of the park, you lose the fan base. I love The Phantom Menace when it came out. Mm -hmm. Though I, I will give the caveat that like about one or two months prior, my soul was completely crushed and destroyed by the Wing Commander movie. Oh, boy, was it. That was like, my favorite franchise is being made into a movie, and it's being done by the original creator. This couldn't possibly be a disaster. Insert Freddie Prince Jr., insert Matthew Lillard, insert wooden acting, insert we don't actually have the appropriate budget to make the cats look anything appropriately menacing, insert... Oh god, that movie makes my soul hurt so much. So when I got to The Phantom Menace after after that crushing experience, like, you know what, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> I've, I've seen worse. I didn't consciously think that at the time, but in retrospect, it was like, yeah, you know, relatively, it's pretty good. But anyway, those those films are, are another podcast. Uh. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. So for Into Darkness... We swear, Benedict Cumberbatch isn't playing Khan. Yeah, it's like we're heavily looking at Space Seed, uh, but you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is definitely not Khan.
So Star Trek 2009 made, made money. And so this was the big follow-up. So we'll just get right into it. We open up with Kirk violating the Prime Directive just about as much as anyone could violate the Prime Directive. For those of you that don't know, the Prime Directive is basically the rule that the Federation does not interfere with any lesser advanced pre-spacefaring civilizations or the internal matters of non-Federation worlds. Whereas Kirk is basically trying to stop a volcano from erupting and destroying a civilization. Spock gets caught diving into the volcano to set up the device to stop it from erupting. Kirk, instead of letting Spock die, decides to fly the Enterprise directly over the alien civilization and steal their religious artifacts to distract them to pick up Spock and leaves them basically building a new religion to the Enterprise. Like, this is about as bad as it can get. As a result, Kirk has his command of the Enterprise revoked. Captain Pike is going to take over instead. Kirk will be his first officer, so Pike can actually show him how to be a responsible ship commander. But Pike is then killed by a rogue Starfleet intelligence officer called John Harrison. Kirk swears revenge. He is encouraged on this by Admiral Robocop, or Admiral Marcus, given 72 prototype torpedoes to go off and find John Harrison. Kirk and company find John Harrison. Upon finding out that they have 72 torpedoes, he surrenders himself, revealing to them that he is not, in fact, John Harrison, but Khan Noonien Singh. Why this matters is never explained satisfactorily, but we find out that his ship was launched 300 years ago. It was a cryo-sleep ship. Admiral Marcus is fearful of the expanding Klingon Empire and the military threat they pose to the Federation. So he's starting to build up the Federation on a war footing, but because the Federation has been so peaceful for the past few hundred years, he doesn't think that they know how to fight a war anymore. So he turns to Khan, one of Earth's greatest warlords, to teach them how to build ships and use tactics or whatever to fight the Klingons, holding Khan's crew hostage in those remaining torpedoes that he had given to Kirk. Khan is not very happy about this and has vowed revenge on Starfleet and the Federation, believing that uh, Marcus had killed his crew instead of just keeping them in cryosleep. Marcus shows up in his giant ship of death that Khan designed, the USS Vengeance, threatens Kirk. Kirk reveals that he knows the plan. Marcus is like, oh darn, Kirk, I liked you, but now I'm going to have to kill you to keep you quiet. Kirk says, no, it's all my fault, my bad. It wasn't the crew, kill me, not the crew. He's like, well, that's really nice, but unfortunately they've seen too much too. So you got all your crew killed. Kirk teams up with Khan to sneak aboard the Vengeance. They sabotage the ship. In the process, Khan kills Marcus and takes over the ship, demands the return of his crew under threat of uh, destroying the Enterprise. Kirk, to fix the warp core of the Enterprise, which has been destroyed, sacrifices his life, same as Spock in Wrath of Khan, to fix it up. Spock beams over the cryotubes containing Spock's crew, but uh, surprise, surprise, he's only beamed over the warheads from the torpedoes, set them on a timer, blowing a hole in the vengeance. It crashes on San Francisco because everything crashes into San Francisco in this franchise now. Spock, angry that Kirk is now dead, beams down to Earth to run and punch Spock to make himself feel better. McCoy realizes that, that Khan's blood is super science blood that uh, cures all diseases, including death. So they need to capture Khan alive. Spock captures Khan. They put him back into the cryosleep. Uses blood to bring Kirk back to life. Speeches, tea and medals. Back to the franchise. So, uh, Robert, do you want to cook this turkey first? Oh, boy. <laughs> There's nothing good about this movie. 
that's kind of where I've landed on this. And where the first reboot was very clearly done to try and get fans of this franchise into you know, seeing recognizable characters, while also kind of trying to introduce them to new audiences who maybe weren't as familiar with them. And the degree to which that movie is successful, we've kind of hashed out already. This piece of crap is nothing but bad fan service. It is nothing but characters in the movie reacting the way the audience reacts, not the way the characters would react. Benedict Cumberbatch goes, my name is Khan, and no one should care about this. Khan doesn't mean anything in this franchise. It means something to the audience, and because we can't have that degree of separation between audience and characters, sure, the characters will react as though this is some startling revelation, when in actuality it's not. It means nothing. <laughs> yeah, to quote the how it should have ended, my name is Khan. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Jim. This is Spock. No, my name is Khan. Yeah, we don't know who that is. Just as an aside, so listening back to me and Jeff review this back in 2013, I was like, that scene really needed Eddie Izzard. I am Khan. Oh, so you are. Aren't you very Connie, aren't you? It's a poorly constructed sequence. They tried a crappy bait and switch on the audience with that that no everyone responded badly to as they should have. What it needed was either Spock or Kirk to say, oh, what, like the 30th century dictator on Earth with the you know, eugenics program and the genetic enhancement or a scene where they go to the computer terminal. You know, computer, search all records of Khan Union Singh. It's like, oh, holy smokes, this guy's is really bad news. Actually, two ways they could have fixed this to where that would have made any degree of sense and it would have been impactful for the audience. Start the movie with the rise of, of Khan Union Singh. Just go flashback, show the war. We haven't seen that yet. We've seen the Kobayashi Maru, you know, and they, they talked about it in Wrath of Khan, and they talked about the more they talked about it in Space Seed. Just show it. Yeah, for all the flaws of this film, lack of money was not one of them. So open your movie. Instead of the stupid scene they opened up with, open your movie with, you know, four score and seven years ago, there was a great war between super-enhanced humans and and, uh, and regular people, and it ended this way, and with, you know, and Khan getting, you know, sent up into space. Okay, great. That's it. And then have them kind of talk about it at some point between then and now. Like, have, have a character make a reference to, oh, back then when Khan was blah, blah, yakety, schmackety. Or, or when they're talking about this John Harrison being an enhanced person, what, you mean like Khan's old people? Something along those lines. So, that, so like, we're building, we're building, and then, okay, now and he's like, I am Khan. They're like, holy shit. <laughs> like we the audience already saw you kicking killing a whole bunch of humans the cast has kind of talked about you people mean business and are deadly and now like we're face to face with you yikes what a threat here's the other way they could have handled it have it not be con have it just be john harrison because they didn't need con in this but that would mean having someone that star trek fans don't already know about you asked Robert to start and I wanted him to finish, but then we got into, like, how could you have made this better? In all honesty, half of why this movie doesn't work is because of the fan service. If you take the fan service out and just have it be, you know, the story is the, the Federation is on this precipice of being a, uh, a warmongering empire or a space exploration fleet. And it's not quite sure which way it's going to go when you have people arguing about that and make that the crux of the movie with Kirk in the middle going, but I hate the Klingons. And have Spock being the logic, you know, like have, have them have that natural animus again of it is logical to try to make peace with people and, you know, and seek out new life and civilizations. And Kirk going, yeah, but they're bad and ugly and they have shit in their foreheads and so I hate them. And just, ha you know, and then have like both sides being, you know, 
you know, having a um, having somebody uh, you know above them, sort of either manipulating them or guiding them along those separate paths, and then having this event happen to where, well, how is the Federation going to handle it? Like a bunch of warmongering killers, or like a bunch of logical science people? And there's your movie. What Starfleet is has always been kind of a bit of a difficult thing to grasp in Star Trek, just the way it's been made. I know Gene Roddenberry had this humanist vision of it being this exploratory uh, humanitarian armada, which is actually, I think, a great line from the first Kelvin movie. But it's also structured like a military and it does have to fight so often. So like, yeah, how the actual structure of Starfleet works where you have military personnel as well as scientists all smushed together on the same ships... It's kind of weird and they've never really fleshed that out well. But again, it's probably not something that they were super thinking about in light of the stories they were trying to tell. But that's the thing. Like, there's an interesting story to tell there of this organization sort of evolving through time. Like, it started off this way, but then people, as people tend to do, got a hold of it and kind of wanted to do it this way. And then other threats came up. Like, it is an absolutely human thing to recognize there's these Klingons out there and the Romulans and this and that. And we better be prepared to fight. And other people within the same organization going, but that's not the mandate. I understand we should be ready to defend ourselves, but we shouldn't be looking for fights either. And have that debate like centered around Kirk and Spock and have your main villain just be a guy. Yeah. He's just John Harrison. He's the pawn of this person who's trying to set up a Cuban Missile Crisis type situation so that we can have war. There it is. What Mark is describing is an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> There's a Deep Space Nine two-parter called Homefront in Paradise Lost, where it's very similar. Is They've discovered that uh, the Dominion, the sort of big bad of that series, there's a race running it. They're shapeshifters. They're just big blobs of goo that can look like anything, anyone. And they find that they've made their way to Earth, the heart of the Federation, and uh, they blew up a conference. So our heroes have to go back to Earth since they have the most experience with these people. Like their security chief, Odo, is one of their race. And they find out that, yes, this was an attack by one of the changelings. But other things start happening and they discover that it's actually a Starfleet admiral doing basically a false flag operation to get more extra powers granted to Starfleet so he can impose martial law in order to stop the Dominion controlling earth and the sort of resolution is like well you, you are basically doing we are doing to ourselves what we are afraid the enemy will do to us you know, we're basically establishing a fascist dictatorship to protect ourselves from being taken over by a fascist dictatorship is the fear of the enemy going to make us change our civilization to the point where it no longer matters if they win or not we've already destroyed ourselves right See, that's a much better story than what they went with because, again, they were so busy, like, doing member berries and saying, like, look, remember remember Khan? You remember Khan. Remember Kirk yelling Khan? Everyone remembers that. Well, now we get Spock yelling Khan. Well, it's, it's so different. Right. And then, you know, I, I am and always shall be your friend. We've been friends for five fucking minutes. Spock making the grand sacrifice to save the Enterprise. Well, now we have to give that to Kirk because Spock can't have anything. Well, we can't be seen as being too different. There's a series of English children's books called the William series, where they sort of follow this rambunctious, uh, like about 11-year-old schoolboy in England. Uh, he was actually a heavy influence on um, Good Omens, the character of Adam. In fact, there's a little uh, wink to the series at the end of the show. But there's one storyline where he comes, William comes home from playing with his friends and he's all beat up. His clothes are torn. He's covered in mud. He's bloodied. And his mom just goes, oh, William, you've been playing that terrible game again, haven't you? He's like, no, mom, not at all. Well, what, what, what is it? It's like, well, well, we were playing uh, Tigers and Tamers. 
He's like, see, you've been playing the same game. No, 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 no. The game you told me not to play was called Lions and Tamers. <laughs> Yo, what's the game? It's like, well, well, in, in Lions and Tamers, half of you is lions and the other half is tamers. And the tamers try and tame the lions and the lions try not to be tamed. Right. And it's like, and, and what, what is this game? It's like, well, this is Tigers and Tamers where half of you is tigers and half of you is tamers. And the tamers try to tame the tigers and the tigers try not to be tamed. Like, it's the same thing. No, no, no. You know, a tiger is completely different from a lion. You know, like a tiger has stripes You know, the lion has a mane. It's, it's not the same thing. Like in my family, this has kind of become an expression. You know, it's tigers and tamers and lions and tamers. You know, same thing, different name. You haven't changed anything of the substance of the story. You've just given the same thing to a different character and like pretended it's different. And then fundamentally misunderstood everything that was in Star Trek II that made it good. Yeah. I, I see all my comments from, from the first movie. You looked at a thing, misinterpreted it entirely, then did your own interpretation of said thing and wondered why you got all the answers wrong. I think the other thing that bothers me so much about this movie, and this is only true in retrospect, like this is only a complaint because there's a third one of these. Boy, does nothing in this movie matter. <laughs> I mean, just nothing. How many problems in Star Trek Beyond could have been solved if they just remembered, hey, we can transport torpedoes between ships? When the shields are down. Well, sure, but still, that's a thing. Or even better, we can transport anything anywhere in the universe instantaneously, and we have magic blood that makes us pretty much immortal. Yeah, Khan's blood, well, it's magic. Oh, so this will have long-running ramifications for society, this show, any future movies, and uh, how, how Starfleet works. This was Orsi and Kurtzman's magic blood phase. It's really just here so that Kirk doesn't die, because if we do Star Trek Three: The Search for Kirk... <laughs> There's no saving us. <laughs> you know that at some point that was someone's thought. And they were like, no, 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 no. Especially when, especially when they react. Like, financially, this did really well. But, like, it's one of those deals where, like, financially it did well, but it lost the fan base. Yeah. Also, you have to think that Wrath of Khan and this film came out in completely different eras of movie media. Now everyone's signed to multi-film deals, and yeah, you know they're not going to kill off Kirk and have him stay dead for the entire franchise after this point. Whereas, you know, like back in the 80s, when Leonard Nimoy said, you know what, I don't want to be Spock anymore. I, I hate making these movies. Kill me off. And they're like, okay. Yeah, we didn't know that Leonard Nimoy would come back as Spock. Like, he could have stayed dead after Wrath of Khan. It just turned out that he had such a great time making the film that he reversed his position on it and decided, you know what? Yeah, I, I want to be Spock again. And they're like, okay, we'll bring you back. Didn't Harrison Ford pull this shit with Star Wars? No. I, I know he wanted, he wanted Han Solo to die earlier on in the franchise, but Lucas said no. Uh, Harrison Ford advocated for Han Solo to be killed by the Carbonite procedure in, Re in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Right. And Lucas said no. <laughs> because George Lucas, as previously established, is a robot. Speaking of robots, Anthony Daniels wanted C-3PO to be the main character of all the Star Wars movies, and George Lucas said no. Okay, well, we've all learned that Anthony Daniels is a lunatic. Yes, Anthony, the Greek chorus is the most important part of a story. <laughs> He made the most of what he had, but not everything George Lucas does is the worst idea. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that, that's very true. I, I just bring that up because, again, Harrison Ford said, you know, I think this would be appropriate for this character to go out this way. And Lucas said, no, I need you around for the third movie. <laughs> not while we're still selling Han Solo toys, you're not. Yeah, pretty much. Also, it'd be nice to point out that Harrison Ford was like the only like new actor in the Star Wars series that like had like a major film career outside of Star Wars at the time. Boy, ain't that still the truth. <laughs> you know, everyone says that, but Mark Hamill has had a hell of a career. 
Yeah, but he wasn't like a big name star with, you know, marquee on multiple blockbusters. He's had an incredibly good, prolific voice acting career. Right, like, and like, but that doesn't count for anything because he wasn't Indiana Jones. But I think I'm getting at the point that Harrison Ford, his career was, was financially incredibly solid at that, at that point. He didn't need Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mark Hamill, again, his voice acting is actually quite good, and the man's had a definite career resurgence doing it. But if you look at his film career, this is not to say that his voice acting is somehow less important than film, but if we're just going to do the comparison, no one in that franchise had their film careers really pan out after Star Wars. In defense of Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher went on to write books, she produced movies, I think she directed one or two of them. Postcards from the Edge is highly regarded. The the three top stars of Star Wars, like you want to make fun of Billy Dee Williams, that's fine, but (laughs) the rest of them, Mark Hamill went on to have a just fine voiceover career. Carrie Fisher went on to do things until, you know, like her her substance abuse and mental health issues has gotten her way. Not like, you know, they've made a joke about how Star Wars killed her career, but that's not really true. That's fair. Like you said, her she had plenty of other things that she might have been able to do if she hadn't had the issues that she yeah. did. And you know, she worked through those and advocated for those for other in other people in the future. And I'm not trying to piss on anybody here, mm-hmm. but there's an objective reality to how your career goes that can't be ignored. Yeah. I again, I think because Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill don't go on to do anything where they're the lead of, of a big time franchise. You know, the the I mean, Family Guy made that joke. They were like, and I'm the only star whose career wasn't affected by this movie. But it's a it's a cheap joke and it's not totally true so star trek (laughs) the poor man star wars (laughs) yeah we knew they weren't going to kill off uh kirk in this one so yeah his death didn't really have that much of an impact uh Um, i believe the word you're looking for is no impact that sequence elicited nothing but groans I don't know anybody who cared one iota about what happened there. It was painfully telegraphed. It was utterly meaningless. Again, it's bad pseudo-fan service by people pretending that because they changed who did it, it's not fan service, it's an homage. What's an homage? It's a ripoff people like. Well, that's when you hit Control-C over something and then Control-V in a different part of them. I've seen this already in a better movie. Yeah. So can I ask you guys a question? Which is the most groan-inducing fake death? Kirk? Or Chewbacca. Jeez. I know. I know my answer to that question. I'd say probably Kirk because there's no way that they're gonna kill him off at this point in this franchise. Whereas Chewbacca, we've had, you know, over six movies by now. It's just if, if they don't want to use Chewbacca anymore, I could believe that. They're different groans. The groan that you get from Kirk is, "Oh God, why are we wasting everyone's time?" The groan you get from Chewbacca is. Boy, they missed an opportunity to actually do something that matters. Yeah, like it's just, I'm sad Chewbacca's dead. Oh, wait, he's alive. Okay, that was it. Within minutes. Within, same scene. Within minutes. Not to get on the, the third Star Wars tirade of this show in the Star Trek retrospective, but that's why I screamed about that on the review. Like, with the Kirk thing, that's just bad movie making, you know, but it's one of those eye rolls where it's like, well, children, children have made this for other children, so I'm just going to roll my eyes at this and move on. You know he's not really dead. You know that this is a big fake-out stupid thing, and the the unfortunate children who made this thing just can't help themselves. The Chewbacca thing was, they actually got me to believe that they had any kind of balls, and then they didn't. And it was like, fuck you for making me feel anything. At least with Kirk, I didn't feel anything. There are different kinds of groans, but yeah, those are... Neither of those was good. My other big gripe with Star Trek uh, Into Darkness is the dogmatic adherence to the status quo. 
the first thing we see Kirk do is screw up, so he can still be that same kind of screw-up rapscallion that we, in theory, enjoyed in the first Star Trek movie. Nothing can change. No one can learn anything. No characters can have an arc. The closest thing you get to an arc is a flat circle, much like time, where you wind up exactly where you started so that we can do this again in the third movie. It drives me up the wall. It is my biggest gripe with network television, and I hate it about franchise movies. There's a bunch of long-running franchises that I don't care for, but a few of them, a few of them, will occasionally let a character change over the course of time, given everything that they go through. And I have to applaud them for that, even if I don't care for the property overall. And this one just actively avoids anything that might actually be interesting or change a character or change the world because we just can't possibly have anything like that in Star Trek, never mind that that's part of the principles that made the original show so darn good. No, 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 no. Kirk must be Kirk, Spock must be Spock, or loose interpretations thereof, and no matter what they do, they always have to wind up back in the same place they started. Oh, and by the way, for nothing but bad fan service on ev- in every possible way you could mean that, here's Carol Marcus, who will do nothing in this movie and then be summarily forgotten immediately despite explicitly joining the crew of the Enterprise. Shame on this movie. And here's a tasteful shot of Carol Marcus in her underwear. I mean, the actress in question... Uh, who has gone on to do other things. I forget her name off the top of my head. The actress' name is Alice Eve, and here's things you've seen her in. Iron Fist. She was in an episode of Black Mirror. She was in the movie Bombshell, which you didn't see, but I did, and that's where I remembered her from. She's in Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. She's in a bunch of other stuff, too, but nothing of which that you've probably ever seen. That, that scene serves no purpose other than, hey, you know, she's an attractive woman, which we already knew, and Kirk likes her, which we already knew, because she's an attractive woman. And that's about as deep as Kirk's use of women goes in this. Is this woman attractive? Sure, and I don't mean that as a slight at Christopher Pine or Kirk in the normal canonical Star Trek. It's bad writing as it pertains to this particular series. It's very nice, but has nothing to do with the movie outside of that. The only decent scene in this entire abomination is them kind of launching themselves across a field of debris in those zero-G suits to infiltrate the other ship. They do like skydiving through space in in these Kurtzman-led films. Boy, do they. 2009 did that. Into Darkness does that. Discovery has done it. He, He loves that set piece. Last thing I wanted to say briefly, and this goes to ship design, I actually really like the, uh, Vengeance. It's a little bit kind of stereotypical, pseudo-edgy design, but, I don't know, it kind of works for me. I, I like the layout. It actually feels like a military ship, unlike the Enterprise, which still feels like a showroom. It feels like the model house from uh, from Arrested Development. Yeah, I, I like the armor that goes over the main deflector when it's not in use. That was a neat idea. I mean, it's, it's just the same layout as a Constitution-class ship, which is not a positive or a negative. The whole through the saucer section I thought was weird. You know, military ship, you would probably want it to be as structurally sound as possible, but it's fine for make it big and black. Still, one of my favorite designs from external visual is the scimitar from Nemesis, which is a great looking ship and you know we talked about that previously uh, I, I don't really have anything else to say about this movie it's bad i can't really think of almost anything good to say about it it is endemic of everything wrong with contemporary franchise filmmaking and should be shamed accordingly so for me i, I guess i'll start off with khan the way the character was used was terrible 
it was you know, a horrible reveal, pure fan service, didn't make any sense in the context of the story. I, I did like Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. He played sort of smart, ruthless. You know, when, when he talks about, you know, I will drain all the air out of your ship and walk over your cold corpses. And just like the iciness in his speech, it's just sends chills down your spine. This is the performance that made me realize that Disney has no choice but to get him to play Admiral Thrawn when they eventually reveal him in the Star Wars Disney Plus universe or whatever they're going to do. Like, he, he did a great job. Uh, I know that they, ca- they caught some flack for, for, again, not going with, like, a an actor of Indian descent to play Khan Noonien Singh. Uh, they got an ethnic guy to play an ethnic character. The, the complaints are valid. Oh, neither was Ricardo Montalbán. Shut up. Again, in like the tie-in comics, he he was originally Indian. They just like altered his appearance so people wouldn't recognize him, even though apparently Kirk and Spock don't even know who he is. Although Spock does have this little line when he's talking to Khan after he's turned on them, is you you will just you'll kill us and go back to resuming your quest to eliminate everything that isn't perfection. It's like this this needed to be more fleshed out earlier on in the film for this to mean anything. Because so far this is just a guy upset that someone woke him up from sleep, took his crew hostage, and then apparently killed them as far as he knew. I can kind of understand why he started blowing stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not to say that makes him a good person, but, you know, at least this guy has been screwed over. I can see why he's acting out. Yeah. He's acting out too much. I'm hearing the pitch meaning in my head. And so this is the good guy, right? No, he's the bad guy. But they woke him up and killed his crew. Have you not seen this, the pitch meeting for End of Darkness? Uh, I've watched a lot of pitch meetings since, you, since uh, the other week, but <laughs> I have not gotten to that one yet. I think there are pitch meetings for all three of these movies. Look them up after we're, after we're done here. Will do. Other than him blowing up London and Starfleet Command, which are both very bad things, you you understand this is a guy who's been wrong, and he's just trying to get his crew back, which is an understandable, somewhat moral motivation. The bit about him being like a ruthless dictator that has slaughtered millions of people because he believes that he is genetically superior to them through being engineered, and we don't want this guy running around with a giant advanced death ship, which he was able to design despite being 300 years out of touch. But I digress. So that bit, it gets into some issues. I did, I did like that the warp core, they at least used something fancy sciencey looking for it this time around. I'm, I don't know what actual installation they used, but I couldn't recognize it as a distillery. So great improvement there. The ship battles, and, and this kind of goes for all of the Kelvin movies, maybe not quite beyond. Actually, yeah, not, not beyond, but for uh, the first two here, really boring. And, and, and that kind of sucks. Like, like, they have all this technology to make all these special effects, and I think they just overuse it. The ships just shoot at each other, there are explosions everywhere, and then one ship's broken, the other one is not. There's no tension, there's no feeling of consequence. Like, you watch the original movie's ship battles, and, oh, you know, they've taken out our warp core, now what are we going to do? We can't escape, our shields are down, if they hit us again, we're dead. All these things happen that give stakes and you understand what's going on. And when when you see a torpedo go through the Enterprise, you're like, oh no, the ship's broken. Like, it's tense. I'm on the edge of my seat. Here it's just explosions everywhere. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know if either of you have watched the Dilbert animated series way back when it came out. Um, I probably saw it like when it came out, but not a, not the whole thing. 
Well, there, there's a scene where Dilbert gets into a fight with Wally, and like these are both nerdy engineers, so not not a bone of physical fitness in their bodies, and and they're basically just like filling their arms at each other's faces, like trying to slap each other, whilst turning their heads to the side to avoid being hit in the face, and that is exactly what these fights feel like to me, throwing everything at each other, you know, without any sense of movement or strategy. Uh, also, the fact that the the big space battle happens in orbit of the moon. Oh. <laughs> and and no and nobody seems to come to investigate that we have this giant mysterious ship of death blowing the crap out of the Enterprise. We've got like you know the star base in orbit around the Earth. They've got the Utopa Planitia shipyards in Mars. This would be like watching a gunfight happening outside of the White House. The big climactic battle in uh, the first one takes place on around Saturn. Like these people pay attention to what goes on in their solar system. <laughs> Yeah, I, in, in defense of the first film, the fleet was initially completely destroyed when it went to Vulcan. So I could cut them a bit of slack there. But in this one, they probably would have had enough time to rebuild. And you would think there would be someone sent to deal with this situation. You know, Admiral Marcus, lovely ship of death you have there. Why are you blowing the crap out of the Enterprise? We, we just want to know. And... Do you care to explain yourself, sir? <laughs> Again, this is kind of one of those nerdy quibbles, but while I'm watching the film, I'm thinking like, why aren't there any other ships there? Yeah, it's the freaking moon. The moon should have been semi-settled at this point in strict continuity. It was. This is happening over a civilized planet where Earth inhabitants are living and nobody's doing anything <laughs> about... Hey, there's spaceships firing, like shooting in the sky. Call a cop. Yeah. <laughs> And, and now I'm actually going to try and say something positive about this film, that despite its flaws, they actually did attempt to give Kirk some character development. So like at the start of the film, we have him breaking the Prime Directive to save his friend's life. You know, he does sort of the right thing for all the wrong reasons, and it, like, it kind of shows him still being reckless of not considering the long-term ramifications of his actions. He has a sort of leap-before-I-look mentality, and it's always worked out for him, and we see him get some comeuppance when Pike you know, strips him of command. It's like, no, 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 you, you messed up too much. I was wrong to put you in charge of the Enterprise, but I'm not going to throw you out on your ass. I'm going to, like, take you under my wing and mentor you more to, you know, show you, you know, how to improve because I know that, you know, you still got some good skills there. And then when Pike's dead, he just goes off all half-cocked. Yeah, I want revenge. Again, not really considering the implications. We get the bit where Scotty says, you know, says to him, like, you know, they won't let me examine these torpedoes to make sure they're safe for use aboard the Enterprise. And Kirk says, I don't care. These are our orders. And Scotty says, well, it's either the torpedoes or me. I mean, it seems a bit strange. Like, there's usually procedures for making sure, like, weapons don't blow up the ships that they're designed to serve on. Like, I'm pretty sure when you're on an aircraft carrier and you're getting all your ordnance loaded, you're not like, hmm, these are new missiles. I want to take them apart first. But in this iteration of Star Trek, Kirk's a warmongering moron. Yeah, and, and I get that thematically that's what they're going with, is he's being a warmongering moron, and that leads him to make all these reckless decisions that end up with his ship being put in extreme danger and his crew getting killed because of his actions. And we actually get him taking the responsibility and understanding that you know, when he goes and gives his life to fix the ship so they can get away. So I'll actually give him credit. There is a bit of a theme here that actually does kind of pay off throughout the film. And they even have that juxtaposed with Khan's devotion to his crew. And I think he even throws it in Kirk's face. You know, like it's a terrible captain that cannot protect their crew or something like that. That was kind of good stuff. Uh, where this film falls apart for me is it, it basically there's there's too much here burying all of that. You, you've got the whole Paradise Lost Homefront storyline with Admiral Marcus and wanting to turn the Federation into a military entity so they can survive 
the impending war with the Klingons and, you know, even start the war himself so it can fight it on his terms. And then you have Khan's revenge and potential threat to the universe which is never really well explained. And, you know, like, like the film dies when Khan snaps Marcus's neck and it's like, well, that wouldn't go anywhere. Now we're here doing this thing. Okay. Uh, so that to me is the cardinal sin of uh, Into Darkness is if it had just been streamlined more, if they took out all the extraneous crap and just focused on one of these storylines, like, you know, like just, just have Admiral Marcus be the bad guy all along. You know, it was Marcus all along. <laughs> And have them deal with this rogue admiral who's trying to trick the Federation into going to war with the Klingons. Or, yeah, have it be someone let Khan out and he's trying to re-establish you know, re his empire and we gotta contain that. Either one of those stories is great, just pick one and actually have it go somewhere. This is uh, like the metaphorical 10 pounds of crap in a 5 pound bag. You know what would have been fun here? Had they actually had like a visible Klingon threat. Yeah. And have that looming in the background and have it build towards yeah. an actual provoked Klingon attack. And then again, if you want to do Khan, how about have him? Like he, um, you know, joins with the Klingons or, you know, like just something other than what, what they did. This is already in the archive, so you can go back and hear what Jeff and I said at the time. So I don't want to repeat myself too much here. But I will say this. You know, we talked about it's too fan service -y. You know, Dave talked about that the plot is just all over the place. Um, they're giving characters things to do that don't make any degree of sense. And all of that's true. Like I said, this is the movie that just absolutely loses the fan base. And they'll never recover from this. Like... <laughs> yeah, burn through all the goodwill. Yeah, that, that, that is exactly the exact thing I was trying to get at is the legacy of this film has been it's what killed Star Trek. It's still like lumbering along. You know, there's still Discovery out there, but like look at what Discovery is. It's it's on a medium where they're just shoving anything and it doesn't matter if it's successful or not. It's, it's just there. As far as where it has to be in a medium that actually generates a profit, Star Trek's dead. It's dead and gone. <laughs> like that that is the legacy of this film. That's the thing I really wanted to talk about was how they didn't just make a bad movie. They drove away the fans <laughs> to the point where this thing no longer makes money. And they're gearing up for Star Trek in 2023 and I'll be curious and allegedly it's part of this timeline, but I'll see what, you know, we'll see between the times that these movies were made and now, a lot's happened with Paramount, a lot's happened with the people that control Star Trek, so we'll see if they've made significant enough internal changes that they can course correct, and enough time has gone by to where the fans are willing to give this another chance, but because of this movie, I don't have a lot of hope for this franchise. The biggest problem facing Trek right now is it's, it's the writer's room and perhaps the producers as well. Everyone else involved... They're doing pretty good. The technical aspects of the sets and production design, they're all done by people who know what they're doing. The actors are giving it their all and doing a good job. It's just the, the core of the writers. And, it, you know, like I watched the teaser for Picard season two and it's like, oh, Q's coming in. It's like, they're bringing Q back. It's like, have they changed the writing staff yet? Nope. Well, then I'm out. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's kind of like if you have a car and the engine's broken you fix it by replacing the rims, the wheels, the transmission, the windows, you know, the upholstery, and, you know, the engine's still broken, guys. It's it's not going to work if you don't fix that bit. Right. And unfortunately, they just don't have it. And one thing I will say is I have quite enjoyed Laura Dex. I mean, more on that when we get to TV partying tonight it, but that is a show where this core group of writers and producers don't really do anything with the show. It's left to a different staff, and it shows. 
Um, we'll cover Picard season two when it comes out. But I mean, that was a really great example of, like I said, everyone tried hard. Patrick Stewart gave it his best. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he did everything he could do with that show. It's not his fault. It was a poorly written show. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what, what point he decided that Picard would be a French pirate, but okay. <laughs> you know what? If you're Patrick Stewart at this point, why not? Oh, I, I don't blame him. It's, you know, he wanted to go off-roading for Nemesis and Picard. Apparently he wanted to be a French pirate. So, hey. If he can convince him to do it, good for him. I can't say it was good for the project, but good for him. Yeah, listen, Adam Sandler has made a career now of getting studios to pay him to go on vacation. I say, if these actors can convince the studios to give them money to do things, take as much studio money as you can. Go for it. From what I hear, Adam Sandler, super nice guy, and you gotta admit, he's very good to his friends. But that being said, the films that he produces on those vacations, no. Thank you. And yet he has a multi-million dollar deal with Netflix. Well, good for him. Yep. And I guess good for Netflix. See previous discussion about shoving stuff into a streaming service not caring how good it is. Yep. I believe that's Netflix's new motto. Stuffing the streaming service like a turkey full of shit. But yeah, this was the new guard of Star Trek's chance to really wow us and show us what they could make of being given this amazing franchise. Like, the thing with Star Trek is, like, as much as we obsess, of, or Star Trek fans obsess over the minutia of, like, the ship and the technology, which is all theoretical, but, you know, that's not really what's so special about it. What's so special is it gives you the ability to go anywhere and tell any story. Like, you can tackle any issue, anything a writer could possibly think of with this setup. It's, it's amazing. Like, you should be drooling at the opportunity to work in a world that gives you this much freedom, and then that's what they did with it. In defense of that, we're going to talk about the next movie that actually tried to course correct. Unfortunately, once you've already hit the lighting pole, it's great that then then you turn the wheel to course correct, but you're, you've already so damaged the car, it's not going anywhere. But yeah, man. Yeah, you, you've, you've hit the iceberg. The ship will sink. It's a mathematical certainty at this point. But Star Trek Beyond, they tried. So final thoughts for me on, uh, on Into Darkness is like, yeah, it doesn't work. It's not the sum of its parts, but I will at least give it credit that there is a kernel of decent effort within it that unfortunately just can't shine due to just the convolutedness of the rest of the film. And yeah, I think, Mark, you hit it right with, you know, the shallow fan service again that just doesn't really work for the story. It's just there. It's like, see, see, we know this stuff. We know the Star Trek things. <laughs> I just wanted to echo your praise for Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, acting. He's a poorly written character who's ex who exists in this movie only for <laughs> poor fan service and just for the directors to kind of try and say shibboleth. But gosh darn it, he does the best that he can with what he's given, and he deserves kudos for that. So please, somebody get that man the appropriate vehicle to be successful in, because he's got more than enough talent. Yeah, he'd make a great Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah, he would. Yeah, that would be a good vehicle for his career to take off. If you want to check out some of the music, but you don't want to pay for it, what you should do is sign up for AmazonMusic.com. And we actually have a link in the description of this podcast that you can click on for GetAmazonMusic.com slash W2M Network. Click on it. You fill out the information. You get a free 30 days of Amazon Music. You can stream all you want. You can stream all the music in the show, stream other things that you like, stream the music that we're covering on the Metal Hammer of Doom when we do cover it, both old and new. So go ahead and click that link. It helps us out. We get credit for it. Keeps the podcast running, and we certainly appreciate it. So despite Star Trek Into Darkness driving the fandom away and not really getting enough new fans in to replace it, it still made a lot of money. So we got another one, but this time Abrams, Orsi, and Kurtzman were out, and we got uh, Simon Pegg 
coming in and Justin Lin. Going into this one, I was actually more optimistic because while Justin Lin, I don't think he had any amazing credits, he had some, you know, like some solid stuff as far as directing went. And, you know, Simon Pegg, you know, like he's written some really good movies and he is definitely a, a Star Trek fan. Justin Lin directed The Fast and the Furious 6, Fast 5, Fast and Furious, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. He's directing F9. I mean, I'd say he was good enough for this. Lin's an incredibly competent director. I, he is not necessarily what's wrong with this movie. So in Beyond, uh, it takes place where the Enterprise is doing its five-year mission. Finally, Kirk's getting a bit tired of the episodic nature of, of life in deep space. And he's starting to question, is this really what I should be doing? He mentions to McCoy, like, you know, my dad joined Starfleet because it was something he believed in. I joined it on a dare. Uh, and he's just wondering whether or not to resign his commission and do something else with his life or, or keep going. We then find that a ship has been damaged in a nebula and is looking for help. So they go to help it out and discover a vast swarm of ships acting as a single ship that pretty much chops the Enterprise into pieces and strands the crew on the planet below where it's being run by an alien army of drones led by an alien named Krull, if memory serves me correctly, played by Idris Elba. So the crew's been captured, except for most of the bridge crew who are, you know, out there wandering around trying to fix things up. And we find this was all a trap to get the Enterprise because they have an alien artifact on board that was part of a diplomatic mission that completes a super weapon left behind by the ancient civilization on the planet. We learn that Krull hates the idea of unity. He is all for not coming together and working together despite having a fleet of ships that synchronize their actions to accomplish goals or being a militaristic person. I mean, uniform, guys. You all wear the same clothes. Uniform, unity. The two are connected there. But more on that later. Krull is able to get the missing part of his super weapon, which basically dissolves organic matter. Kirk and crew meet up with an alien survivor on the planet named Jayla, named after Jennifer Lawrence, apparently, because she's a strong, <laughs> independent woman who don't need no man. She's been holed up in an old like an ancient Starfleet ship, the USS Franklin. Scotty is able to repair the Franklin and they head off after Krull and hit, after rescuing the Enterprise crew. Uh, they figure out that the weakness of the swarm ships is they really, really don't like the Beastie Boys. So they play that as loud as possible over the intercom and the ships just all blew, blow up. Krull has gone to the Yorktown base, which the ship initially departed from, which is like a giant Federation space colony that represents the ideals of all these species working together. Krull wants to get to the environmental control system so he can hook it up to the weapon and kill everyone inside because he just really does not like the Federation. I was eventually learning that he was actually a Federation captain, the captain of the Franklin, who after the establishment of the Federation found himself a soldier without a war and became disgruntled and found this ancient alien outpost that turned him into an alien himself and he's been using their technology to harness the life force of the crashed species on that planet to keep himself immortal for this time. So Kirk tracks him down, they fight, they punchy. He says, you don't have to do this. Krull says, yes, I do. And Krull gets kicked out of the control center. The weapon activates, they vent him into space and he himself is dissolved by it. Kirk, after this adventure and seeing what becomes of someone who succumbs to the madness of deep space exploration, renews his faith in Starfleet and its mission and ideals in the Federation, decides that he's going to keep on working. Jayla looks into joining Starfleet and they are given the new... Enterprise A, which has the nacelles the right proportions this time, and they sail off to explore strange new worlds and seek off out new life and new civilizations if CBS Paramount ever figures out what the heck is going on. 
All right, so Robert, you, you seem to be the one with the most to say here, so we'll let you take... No, the most negative to say. Take the first shot. Let me start with this. And this is, I think, where the big divide between our experiences with this movie comes from. This is, I feel unequivocally, the most Star Trek of these movies. It feels like a mediocre episode of the television show. Oh no, how horrible. Whether you think that's a positive or a negative, I leave up to you as an individual. There's things about this movie that aren't the worst. This is the best of the three. Unfortunately, it succumbs to all the same problems, well, most of the same problems that the other ones do. What passes for Kirk's character arc is him saying, boy, I sure do like the status quo because franchise. I don't hate the fact that he's questioning his life choices at this point. I kind of hate the fact that there's nothing for him to play off of. He starts in one place going, boy, I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life, saves the world again, and then goes, boy, I sure do want to do this for the rest of my life, as though this doesn't actually fix the problem. It sure would have been nice if he had someone to play off of when discussing this. I mean, they give lip service to him and uh, Spock having a little bit of a back and forth. But just kind of by way of example, spitballing here, you know what would have helped this if he had a legitimate love interest, say Dr. Carol Marcus, who's supposed to give birth to his kid. But no, she's not here for no discernible reason. <laughs> the entire finale sequence for this movie makes my head hurt. The CGI is so bad. I don't know why they didn't save any budget for Kirk and Idris Elba to run into each other in zero gravity, but they sure didn't. It is unbearably painful to look at. They barely have human proportions most of the time, <laughs> to say nothing of how awful their faces look on the rare occasion you get a shot of them. The rest of the cast, I mean, my big gripe here is they don't give them anything to do. There's not even, not just character growth, but there's not even a whole lot of character interactions present in this movie. They pair everyone off in the way that you should pair off an ensemble cast, and then we still just spend 80% of the time with Kirk. You know, with an outside little bit of time spent with Scotty. We completely ignore any possibility that we might have had fun with Spock and McCoy being the ones paired off together. How do you do that? How do you pair off Spock and McCoy in your marooned adventures on this planet and then make it the least interesting sequence of everything that goes on? And, oh, by the way, here's a dirt bike riding scene because aren't just kids into that sort of thing these days. This movie has the best bones, no pun intended, of any of the movies in terms of the story structure, in terms of what it tries to evoke as an experience. It also just can't seem to get out of its own way, or the producers won't let Justin Lin actually tell a decent story. Capped off with not only the bad CGI fight, but because Abrams is producing the music of the Beastie Boys. I cannot begin to express to you how hard I eye-rolled, face-palmed, and almost plotsed when that happened in the movie. It is the worst kind of fan service. It is stupid. It doesn't actually add anything to anything. Just shame on that decision-making process. Everyone involved in it, I don't care whose call it was, everyone along that particular decision-making process tree should be publicly flogged. The acting is all fine-ish. I mean, I hate to say that about Idris Elba, because I love Idris Elba, but he's not given anything to do. The closest they get to uh, anything approximating a character arc is Kirk's pseudo-midlife crises, but they don't even do anything with that. 
it doesn't inform anything about the character other than the start of the movie when he expresses this and the end of the movie when we get resolution. And that constitutes an arc, right? Well, it's certainly two points, whether or not it forms an arc or they're just actually overlapping points masquerading as a straight line, I leave up to you as the viewer. Some of the action is pretty good. Justin Lin is a, has a really good eye for this kind of stuff. That is actually one of my big gripes about the Beastie Boys music. It supersedes and detracts from stuff that is visually quite good for no reason other than J.J. Abrams has an inexplicable hard-on for No Sleep Till Brooklyn, and I know that's not the song they played, but go with me here. Look, all Beastie Boys songs are the same song. We all know it, just no one wants to admit it. That's kind of the end of my thoughts on this. I, I get why Trek fans like this movie. The problem is if you're not a Trek fan, you don't like this movie. So, not being a huge... Odd, considering I've been on all of these shows. <laughs> not the biggest Star Trek fan. I'm just not afraid to expand my horizons and challenge my perceptions about these things. It just falls a little bit flat. Would you have seen Beyond if we weren't reviewing it at the time? No. Okay. Well... I might have on a family thing, like, mm -hmm. like the family might have gone to see it and I might have gone with them, but absolutely, like, on my own, just, Robert, in a vacuum, would you ever have seen this? No. Right, I, like, I, I can't speak to what you would have seen giving blood one day, but I'm saying, like, would you have gone to the theater, no. purposefully? N okay. Not unless I was doing a, again, not unless it was kind of a family thing. Okay. Uh, no, this... This did not terribly appeal to me, and again, we're talking about the movie that has to follow into darkness. So the lack of enthusiasm from any of the theater goers would be totally understandable. Yeah, on online, like the discourse around this film was just like like a funeral. No one was excited for this to come out. I actually thought it looked pretty decent. Like again, we've got Abrams gone, Kurtzman and Orsi gone, and for all the heck Abrams gets, again, I he's the director, and as a director, he's decent. It's, it's more the writers that I take issue with. I don't know how much Abrams had directly involved with that. But you know, looking at the filmography of Orsi and Kurtzman, where I would say, like, at best they have attained mediocrity in the writing of what I have seen. Like, I, I, I lay most of the blame at their feet, and uh, Kurtzman certainly hasn't done anything to change my opinion with his work with the franchise since then. You know, like I mentioned before that the cancellation of uh, Enterprise was the second worst decision CEO of CBS made for Star Trek. Hiring Kurtzman on for five years was number one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's something of an unforgivable sin there. Yeah, like, I, I don't want to go completely off on the man. I've never met him. Like, for all I know, he's doing his best. But uh, he, he is not a good match for this franchise. He just doesn't doesn't get it at the level or have the skills necessary to make this franchise successful, in my view. But, hey, we're on four seasons of Discovery, Picard going to second season. So maybe it's working out for them. I don't know. I don't know the numbers, but... That's beside the point. But anyway, I'm I'm I was happy at the change in creative control moving over to better people as near as I could tell. And first looks in the trailers, it's like, oh, this looks, looks like an episode of the original series, but with you know more updated you know effects. And that's fine because this is based on the original series. How dare new Star Trek look like old Star Trek, but newer? I thought this was what we wanted. <laughs> so I went in to see it, and yeah, overall I was I was pleasantly surprised. Like it. The action scene with the Enterprise flight fighting the swarm ships was very well done. I, I love how what the ships did always had an effect on what the Enterprise was doing. You know, we're trying to warp away. Well, now they've cut the warp engines off, so that's no longer an option. Uh, we need to get impulse going. Oh, now they're cutting the engineering section off from the rest of the ship. The aesthetics, it looks like, you know, 60 Star Trek versus Halo with the way that the drone 
drones themselves look like. You know, like it, it was a neat take on things, a neat sort of almost commentary on the old idealism of classic Trek versus the more military-focused modern sci-fi video game properties now. Um, yeah, I would say that Kroll as a villain, he doesn't have a lot of presence despite Idris Elba giving it as much as he can. Uh, again, I, I sort of alluded to it earlier, the, the whole idea of someone in a military background objecting to the concept of unity is, is a bit strange. But again, I, I can see that they're trying to like reestablish the founding principles of the utopian federation that a lot of fans you know, appreciate. And yeah, like I, I, it was definitely a huge course correction. Kirk being a bit more older and wiser now works really good. Like you get at the beginning and Christopher Pine really does feel more like an experienced Kirk who knows what he's doing now. He's he's not the horny frat boy anymore. He's become a lot more of a mature adult captain. You know, I thought that was good. And yeah, like the, at least the idea of him having this midlife crisis was not a bad idea. I, I agree that they didn't really explore it that much during the film. So so that, that all worked out really good. Yeah, the motorbike scene I thought was really silly and completely unnecessary. They could have accomplished their goals with something a lot less grandiose. That that felt like a studio note. Like, you know, we, we, we want a big motorbike action scene in this film because that's what they like in China or overseas or whatever, whereas it, it's not really a Star Trek thing. So that didn't work out. Uh, I mean, yeah, I can't say I'm a huge fan of the Beastie Boys. I don't really hate them either. I, I know that's, you know, Abrams sort of added it in. I do like the idea of the Beastie Boys or like modern contemporary music existing within the future. Like one of my criticisms of more classic Trek is it seems like, you know, the only music that's allowed to exist in the future is classical or jazz. <laughs> True. But there's great music made outside of that, guys. It's, it's okay. Like, you, you know, you can, you can play some Stones or Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or whatever. How is there nobody on the Enterprise that's a metalhead? Right? There's somebody down in engineering who occasionally will just respond to a, a request with, you know, Iron Maiden song titles. Or we've got we've got somebody there who's thrashing out to a, a guitar solo. There's probably a Cannibal Corpse fan in there somewhere, too. In a classic episode of the original Doctor Who, there's like a moment where one of the companions is talking about, oh, you know, like I, I like listening to the Beatles because like they're from the 60s. And, I, and it's either the Doctor or another character who's from like far in the future. Like, oh, I like classical music. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm with you there. I think the fear is that it would date the property too much, but, I mean, at this point, the Beastie Boys haven't been relevant for 20-plus years, so throwing them... Oh, my God. Tell me... Hold on. Tell me I'm wrong about You're that. wrong. When was the what last... What do you mean the Beastie Boys... You say shit because you don't like something. No, no, no. When it has no basis in truth. You okay. just don't like it. How are you telling me that the Beastie Boys are not a cultural centerpiece and an icon of the music industry? Documentaries upon documentaries, one currently on Apple Plus, exist about the band. These guys, like, set up festivals, supporting Tibetan monks. Their music is known over the world. They're multi-platinum artists. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, it, it doesn't matter that I like them or don't like them. You say that they don't matter in culture or aren't relevant is ridiculous. People are still quoting their stuff. When was the last time they released a relevant album? Dude, one of the guys is dead. I don't care. Bunch of the Beatles are dead too. They're not contemporarily relevant. That's my point. Use a different word then, because it sounds like you're saying like, they, like they're like they not relevant to culture, and I just read off a litany of things that they are. They are not active participants in the culture. How about that? That would be an accurate statement, considering the half of the Beatles are, oh, I think almost all the Beatles are dead, and one of the Beastie Boys is. I'll agree with that. 
Okay, so the Beastie Boys are not an active participant in culture, ergo using their music when they haven't released an album that actually mattered since arguably before I was born. Their big heyday was, what, the uh, the late 80s into the early 90s? Again, it depends on what we're talking about here, because yes, they got big in the 80s, but then they, again, when they released uh, whatever the album was with Sabotage on it, they had a huge resurgence, and it took them for decades. They maintained a cultural footprint. Sure, I'm, I'm not disputing that. This is just kind of a generational thing. When they haven't released something that matters in about 30 years, and considering we're in 2021, if they haven't done anything since the 90s, they're 30 years old, 30 years out of date, throwing it in doesn't actually date things as much as everyone who still can't wrap their heads around the fact that the 90s ended 30 years ago, or started 30 years ago, think that it does. I mean, let me ask you a question. They, so, and, and you have to pick music for that scene. You want it to be something contemporary because you want to make your audience happy, but it has to match the tenor of the scene, and you're not going to go with your own personal tastes. For that scene to make sense, but again, you want something that the audience will respond to, what do you pick? And I'm asking, like, like I, I don't know, like, to me, it, it doesn't seem to matter, and they just went with what would give them a yuck at the time, but you seem to think it does, so what makes a better choice? I would have had the composer compose something. The guy did great work with the rest of the music in this movie. I don't know why you would need that. My biggest gripe with this being the Beastie Boys is not so much that it's the Beastie Boys in this scene. It's that J.J. Abrams shoehorns them into every project he's a part of. I mean, that's a legitimate complaint, but I feel like you always throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, you know, J.J. Abrams makes poor decisions in his producing and directing. Okay, and this thing sucks too. Well, wait a minute. And this doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like, that's part of the problem with... When we're talking about these, we're not talking about them in a vacuum. We're talking about them as part of a whole. So the foibles and the idiosyncrasies and the obnoxious decisions that go into stuff like this carry over from film to film to film to film to film, and it creates a grating, unbearably repetitive effect. I would have totally agreed with that had Ray been, like, walking around the Millennium Falcon to the Beastie Boys. That's the one thing he couldn't do. But it... Like... This is not a joke. Look up the stuff J.J. Abrams has been a part of. He always puts the Beastie Boys in there somewhere. Okay. I, I, I will take your word for it. It's not something I've noticed. So I think in like classic Trek, the reason why it was mostly classical or jazz music that they chose was they wanted to appeal. Like this is like an evolved humanity where it's only the best examples of culture. And you know, at the time, that was considered the sort of most prestigious, artistically relevant or high forms of music. That's awfully snobby. It is. It completely is, and I totally disagree with that. The other thing I think they were going for was a particular kind of auditory experience to blend along with what Roddenberry thought about the future. It's very high culture focused. Like even, you know, like they're always performing plays of like Shakespeare or Waiting for Godot or all that art house sort of prestige level productions. Like I think it was only until like Enterprise where they actually like watched actual films and movies in the mess hall because they didn't have holodecks in that time period of the show. I don't disagree with you in that respect. I, I just think that, one, the rights fees for getting the Stones in the 70s would have been too much for that show. Yeah, like, it doesn't have to be the Stones. Just You could use stuff other than the Beastie Boys. Classic rock, I think we would call it now, that, that genre. You know, I think these songs would continue off into the future, even for hundreds of years. Considering, like, Elvis is, what, the 50s, and we still reference Elvis. Elvis is still a cultural touchstone. You know, the Beatles, 
we, we, we've brought them up now a couple of times. That was the 60s. We'll talk about that. That's still relevant to the culture. Not actively participating in the culture, but relevant to the culture. There's plenty of things they could have done both in this movie and in the other show. But I do think you're right. I think it's it's kind of like, you know, outsiders' perception of professional wrestling being this lowbrow thing that nobody should take seriously and it's a bunch of clowns. And, you know, I, I feel like people who worked on the, the original Star Trek might have looked at, like, rock and roll as that's something that the townies do. That's that. That's not, like real art also at the time like a lot of these songs would be modern music or not even written yet mm -hmm. yeah would you put justin bieber into star trek now assuming that anyone's going to care about justin bieber 300 years from now i mean i don't know personally i don't see why you can't put justin bieber in there he was just on a boxing pay-per-view stop <laughs> time is kind of the most effective critic of any medium mm -hmm. like over time you know all the okay to terrible stuff is filtered out and you're just kind of left with the the good stuff that moves forward and uh you know, we don't know what being made now will be popular in 100 years or even 30 years from now the most popular song right now could be completely forgotten in 30 years or not there's a great web series of like kids kids and old people like reacting to things and there's a lot of like kids reacting to music that I grew up with which it's, it's pretty, it can be pretty funny at times because without the context it, some of this stuff is really hard to understand why it would have been popular in any day and that's kind of what you're getting at is how well does stuff age there are things that are popular in a moment you know and they catch like a wave of fever but then when you you know you look back on it years later it's like oh well okay it was just a fad this has no this has no cultural staying power yeah, so if I'm making like a Star Trek show and I want to have them listening to older music in the show, because we don't have future music, time doesn't work like that, do I want to use something from the present where I don't know whether or not this is going to be something that has staying power through the ages, or am I going to go like into my past and see like, well, we still listen to these songs, we still mostly consider them to be great classic works. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, now I'd be like, oh yeah, of course, like people would listen to, you know, Jimi Hendrix because Jimi Hendrix. But if I'm like some old buddy in the 60s, I'd be like, you know, what's up with this crazy kid? Like, I don't understand. Why is he playing his guitar backwards? Yeah, stuff like that's like, but Mozart, yeah, Mozart, everyone loves Mozart, you know, stuff like that. Right. It'll shift throughout time. So I can kind of maybe give him some slack there. I mean, I don't disagree entirely with Robert's point about using the Beastie Boys. However, one, I like the band, so it didn't offend me. Number two... You think about, like, action sequences and soundtracks to set action sequences, they usually feature a contemporary or at least a pretty raucous soundtrack. And in this particular instance, they use the music in the context of the plot of the film. But in another movie featuring the same set of circumstances, they just play that music over the scene because they want people to be into it. And so, like, it's not that I totally disagree with what Robert's saying about it. It's just one of those where... This isn't the only offender of said thing, and you can point at it and say, that's bad, that's dumb, but it's hard for me to then forget that I also enjoyed it, and I was rocking out to that scene. Like, I just we watched it earlier. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Like, the, the motorbike scene, meh, but the shot of them amplifying the sound as there's the break in sabotage, and you get that wah, and everything catches fire, that to me was a cool visual and use of sound, you know, sound and visual. I mean, I'm not a big follower of the Beastie Boys, but I think it, it, it has that sort of rebellious streak in it that works good for the action. Mm -hmm. like, like, you're not going to put Bob Dylan over that scene, right? <laughs> what are we fighting for? <laughs> Might I suggest Mandy? <laughs> okay, Robert won that one. <laughs>
you know, or even like in the first movie where the, like, the song is used to like Kirk's being a rebellious kid. He's stolen his dad's car, drives it off a cliff. To sabotage, by the way. It's kind of like, you know, Baby, Baby Got Back, right? Like, you know, it's, it's a naughty song, but it's not too naughty that you can't play it in anything. Right. It's thematically appropriate enough, yet safe enough that they can stick it in the movie. And yeah, sure. Maybe it's just, yeah, J.J. Abrams. This is his favorite band. He puts it in everything. They decided to let him run the show. So he did. It's not a big deal to me. Have we so little to say about this movie? We've now spent like a half an hour just complaining or arguing about the music. The one song. That's how little impact and interest this movie has. And look, let me say this somewhat in defense of that position in this movie. It's not deep. Not everything has to be. <laughs> this movie, I think, is aggressively shallow, which is not the same as not being deep. But again, it's also the best of these three that we've talked about and you know, the most Star Trek-y of the films. And for both good and ill, all things considered... No, there's not a whole lot to talk about here. So yeah, we yell about the Beastie Boys because it's something to talk about. Other than that, this film is, uh, it's not worth a rewatch unless you're going to do something like this. It's not terribly interesting. I'd probably rather rewatch this film than the other two. Sure. I'd rather get slapped in the face than kicked in the groin. I can't do things out of chronological order, plus I wanted my kids to have some context as to who these characters are, but if I just wanted to show them a movie that I think would be entertaining and not worry about any of the rest of that stuff, I should have started with this one. Well, this one exists just fine in a vacuum, more or less. You're not wrong. It barely has anything to do with the other two, apart from the characters. Yeah, but if you've ever watched a movie as an adult with a small child, there's, there can be a lot of really annoying questions. So I'm figuring if we start with Spock and Kirk from the beginning, and there's interest there, by the time we get here, they're not asking me, who's Spock and Kirk? Why are they acting the way they are? What's all this about? You know, and they can just enjoy the movie. I don't know, I might try it. I mean, I, I'm never going to show them into darkness, because why would I do that to my children? It's not enough that the kids have questions. You have questions. <laughs> but I mean, if I ever, like, if we're ever, you know, another Sunday morning movie day in the house, and it's like, hey, we just want to watch a fun movie, not for the purpose of podcast. Yeah, I don't see why I wouldn't watch Beyond with them. I actually legitimately think they would enjoy it. And I'm telling you right now, like, when the sabotage scene comes on, I guarantee you they'll both be up and dancing. They'll think it's great. And this movie appeals to that level of audience. Weirdly enough, I don't disagree with a lot of what Robert said. I like the fact that thematically, Kirk is struggling with the five-year mission because up to this point in both movies one and two, he did talk about the possibility of the five-year mission and how exciting it would be, but they've written Kirk into this character who just wants to punch things in space. And so I thought, and they should have developed this more, but it's def definitely at least inferred that he thought the five-year mission was them punching stuff in space for five years, finding new things to punch. And when it turned out to not be that, and it's implied in the scene, it's kind of summed up. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it that scene in the beginning one sets up the MacGuffin but also it's him doing a thing he doesn't really want to do and not particularly good at and didn't think that's what the five-year mission would be they should have talked more about that and he should have reflected more about that to make it very clear for the audience I picked it up but I was also looking for it Robert's absolutely right they should have had him had those scenes play out with Carol Marcus or Spock or Uhura or a pet rock somebody he freaking joined up with McCoy mm-hmm this is supposed to be, in theory, his oldest friend in Starfleet. They have the birthday scene. They have the scene where they're, sh where they're doing shots of whiskey and he's talking about his birthday. That would have been a great time to talk about it. Yeah, you know, the, I don't know. Maybe they were too worried it would feel too derivative of Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Having already made that mistake. Never mind that that's actually like the best scene in Wrath of Khan is when those two are just sitting around over Kirk's birthday, just kind of reminiscing about you know, the nature of life. It's certainly a callback to that moment. 
Yeah. But unlike Into Darkness, they, they take it in a different direction. Like, this, is, this isn't Kirk going, like, I wonder if I'm just too old to be of use anymore. This is Kirk going, like, I wonder if this is really what I should be doing with my life. Yeah. It's his birthday and it's about getting older, but it's a different point of getting older in his life. The idea of, like, Kirk feeling getting, you know, just being lost in the mission and having lost, you know, having feeling a, a loss of sense of identity. They're kind of hinting, pointing, maybe glancing at the idea that this is the sort of thing that drives men crazy. And then flash forward, we see that's exactly what happened to Idris Elba. I feel like that should have happened a, a little earlier in the movie. Yo, know, he talks about it getting episodic at the start, right? Which I hate that line, by the way. That is so self-aware and so the guy's going, I like Star Trek the movies, I don't like Star Trek the show. Okay, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit too wink at the camera. This show was made by people who like Star Trek. Like, I don't think they were taking a dig at the, the shows or anything. It was just like, yeah, it's based on a TV show, Waka Waka. Mm. But like, you, you get to the bit where like, you know, he opens, you know, his closet and it's just the same uniform right. on the hanger over and over. It's a gag, but it's also like symbolizing just the monotony of his life now. You get this like with people who are actually in the Navy doing tours on ships where you're just... On the ship, you're just traveling from point A to point B. There's not really anything to do. It's the same thing over and over mm -hmm. and over again. It gets really dull. You start to wonder, what am I doing with my life? And I think that's where Kirk is right. at this point in time, is just the monotony of cataloging nebula, looking at stellar phenomena, doing diplomatic missions, which end up with him getting attacked by a barrel of monkeys. You know, he's just kind of like... I'm, I'm, I'm tired. Like, th th this is like the Simpsons joke. Star Trek 23, so very tired. And it's only when he gets to the adventure with Kroll and all that stuff that he kind of refines his spirit of adventure. Like, I kind of think that might be what they were going with. I think when they're sitting there and they're kind of listing ideas they want to put in the movie, those ideas were definitely on the paper. But I think through rewrites, a lot of that stuff gets taken out because have we gone too long without an action sequence? What about some Beastie Boys music video type stuff? I mean, like, these are things that, that happen throughout the course of a film. So I think they were there once upon a time, but they got taken out. Um, and the movie, the movie suffers for it. I, I started to talk about, I think, the revelation that Idris Elba is playing a character who is essentially Kirk's nightmare right now is that, you know, Kirk is afraid he'll turn into Idris Elba. That needed to be established early on in the film. It gets established like in the third act. And, you know, by that point, you're just kind of watching an episode of the 2009 Star Trek series. It was said multiple times throughout the show, this feels the most like an episode of Star Trek. Unlike the TNG ones, where those are just kind of boring and blah, this actually felt like it had some life to it, which is one of the things I like about it. The woman who plays Jayla... I like her in this. She's fun. She's sassy. She's, you know, she's got some vim and vigor to her. Sophia Putella has sort of a, a hit and miss career. <laughs> like, you know, she's in The Kingsman. She was, she had been in The Kingsman. She plays like Princess Aminet in The Mummies. So she got like a raspberry for worst supporting actress. And then she's in Atomic Blonde, where she's nominated for a best supporting actress. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, she was that girl in Atomic. Took me a minute to remember that. So, I mean, she's kind of a fun character to have in this. And she has good chemistry with Simon Pegg. Look, the movie's not without its fault. It's not perfect. But, you know, as we've said, it's the best of the three. It's the one that most feels like Star Trek. It feels like it has the most life to it. It's the least stupid, and it's the least fanservice-y. Robert said it before when I was talking about showing it to my kids. It's the, it's the one that exists as the most standalone of the three and can be enjoyed as just a movie. Yeah, like this is the one where I think they said the last two drove the fans away, the last one especially, and we're not bringing in any new fans with this. It's, it's just people who want to go to an air-conditioned theater for two and a half hours during the summer. I think when the marketing on this was like wrote and written by Simon Pegg, I think they were trying to acknowledge that they'd messed up the first two times. But, you know, it's not easy to bring fans back to the 
theater for stuff once you've pissed them off. Look at Star Wars. I mean, granted, you know, Rise of Skywalker still made over a billion dollars, but it did the least well of all of them, and Solo bombed. More to the point, regardless of finances, did in fact drive the audience away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was them trying to get back to basics, trying to pull out of the dive that they were in. It was a nice attempt at getting the franchise back on track. Like, they ditched the Spock-Uhura romance, which we talked about in the first film, and in the second film we didn't even bother mentioning what happened with them. It mattered so little. <laughs> we're putting things back on track. I even like how they get the new Enterprise at the end, and it, and it just looks better. Like, I, I really regret that we're not going to see any more of that ship, most likely, because I thought it was a really, really nice update to the design. Yeah, like it's it's a good sort of getting the franchise back on track, sorting the characters out. It's just unfortunately that they kind of had to share with what had been left over from the previous two films. And by that point, the damage was done too much that they just couldn't revitalize the franchise. If that winds up being the last one, then I think this particular revival should stand as a monument to what a bad idea it is to just kind of throw these things out there without properly giving the attention to the writing. Because Abrams is a competent director for the most part, his idiosyncrasies aside, and the actors all certainly put forth good efforts. I mean, at what point did we complain about the acting in any of these movies, right? The cast is the strongest point of this series. You need a Kevin Feige, just like you needed a Kevin Feige for Star Wars, who is now, at least the rumor was it was John Favreau. That may not be the case anymore, but in theory, that was going to be John Favreau. You need somebody at the top of the franchise who... I know there are, like, hardcore comic book people that, like, Kevin Feige doesn't understand Marvel. Look, Kevin Feige has an interpretation of the Marvel comics, and he has a story he wanted to tell, and then he was like, as long as we're maintaining these guidelines, let the directors sort of make their movies. And that worked, and that's why the Marvel Cinematic Universe was as successful as it was. It hasn't been duplicated because nobody else understood what Kevin Feige was doing, why he was doing what he was doing, or what the purpose of having a Kevin Feige at the top is. I don't want to get into arguments with people who are hardcore comic book fans about it, but whatever weight you give to Kevin Feige's understanding of comic books, he at least has some. And so it's important that you have somebody at the top of the franchise in that position who at least on some level has a modicum of understanding of the property they're dealing with. So you can't just put a Gorsi in charge of Star Trek who doesn't really understand the property, who thinks they, you know, they, they do. But I, and I don't even know how like you measure or test for that. Well, it's actually interesting you mentioned that because I, I watched some of the special features for the 2009 Star Trek on the Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting when they were introducing sort of the behind the scenes crew, they had this little thing of, you know, what level of Star Trek fan are they? Like they're trying to like validate that, oh, this person doesn't really know anything about Star Trek. Oh, but this one's a, you know, a super Star Trek fan, sort of trying to justify their knowledge, whereas... You should just be able to show that all in the script. Yeah. It's like Galaxy Quest, Robert's favorite Star Trek movie. The best Star Trek movie. You can tell by watching that film that this was written by people who deeply know and love Star Trek. Even though if you like the casual observer, it seems like it's, it's poking fun at Star Trek. Yeah, and, and look, that was the problem with Ryan Johnson's Star Wars, where Ryan Johnson just wanted to make, you know, wanted to make Knives Out in Space. Oh, stop. <laughs> that is not what he wanted to make. He wanted to do his own thing. Yes, that's what I'm implying. And he did, without any care for the poor sap who had to follow it up and deal with the damage he caused. Or what the guy before him had done, or what the overall plan was. And, like, the idiot in charge of Star Wars at the time, Kathleen Kennedy, was like, yeah, great, do it. And that's the problem. You know, right now everyone's, like, jerking off Zack Snyder, but it was the same thing there. It was like, 
Zack Snyder, I want to make this, I want to make Man of Steel. I want to make this sort of, you know, Christ allegory Superman movie. Okay, but the Avengers just made a billion dollars, so now make a cinematic universe. It's not really what I intended. It's not really what I'm interested in, but okay, sure. And in chapter two, it doesn't work out. <laughs> so let's throw everything Zack Snyder did out the window. Yeah, like I, I don't know if this next Star Trek film, apparently out in 2023, what's going to go on with that? Is it going to make it or is it going to join the graveyard next to Section 31 or, or whatever? Mm -hmm. But I think the big problem is we don't have someone running Star Trek yet who seems to really grasp the franchise really well. Well, my hope is, to sort of end the discussion on, on a fun note, where should Star Trek go? Two things. One, there's a rumor out there of a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek. Yes. Give me that. I think that's pretty dead. Though I would be very curious to see what Tarantino would do with it. Well, it would be an ode to the it would be an ode to the '60s '70s Star Trek. It would, that's exactly what it would be. Yeah, I listened to like a, a podcast excerpt with him talking about, it, and he mentioned yesterday's Enterprise a lot, which is you know a classic, great episode. Mm -hmm. So I think he's looking at the right place. Right. So like. I want a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie. I think that's what the world needs. A standalone, not connected to anything, one and done, Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek. I think that's what the world deserves. If you're not going to give me a good movie, then at least don't do any more of these. Just whatever this one in 2023 is, start again. Start brand new. Don't give me a prequel. Don't restart the goddamn universe. Just these are our uh, middle of the five-year mission, new cast, doing a thing. And just focus on that. Robert, what do you think? What do you think they should do? I'm down for a Tarantino Star Trek. I'm down for most things that are associated with Tarantino. I mean, the man's got, what, maybe two misses in his entire filmography? Some of that entirely dependent on what you enjoy personally in film. Yeah. I think the big thing with Star Trek, and this goes a little bit towards Star Wars, but if you want to tell a good Star Wars story, you need an understanding of mythology. I think that's kind of the fundamental underlying element of storytelling that you need in order to really get Star Wars. And that's what neither J.J. Abrams nor Ryan Johnson really had. I preferred Ryan Johnson's take on it because I found that an, an infinitely more interesting film-going experience. But I don't take issue with anyone that goes, that's not really a Star Wars movie. Like, okay. In some respects, it's a lot better, so I get why you're confused about this. <laughs> If you want to have a solid grasp of Star Trek, you need to be able to mirror interpersonal, smaller character dramas with large-scale consequences. You need to be able to give us some of the classic Star Trek episodes. That's what they did. There was a small interpersonal problem that a bigger issue could help illuminate and give clarity to, but it was never all that ham-fisted. On occasion it was, but it was you know, very rarely ham-fisted. And you just don't really get a lot of people that are good at that right now because everyone wants to talk so either so broadly or way too uh, fine a point. And there does need to be a bit of a happy medium there for Star Trek. And I don't know who I would like to... I like Tarantino as an option, but I like Tarantino to do just about a lot of stuff. Beyond that, I don't know what I would go with for Star Wars, by example. If you wanted to ask me who I think has a great understanding of mythology and film, I think we need to get a Guillermo del Toro Star Wars movie. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's probably unlikely to ever happen. I mean, that said, Del Toro on Star Trek wouldn't be the worst either, now that I think about it. But you can't just get anybody to do it. Justin Lin is a perfectly competent action director, but most of his stuff is a bit soulless, such as all of his Fast and the Furious entries. I mean, that's not really his fault. That's a soulless franchise. Or over the last couple of movies in particular, it's certainly become that. 
Whether it started out like that or not, well, that is a subject for further debate. For me, I would say I'd kind of like to see a bit of a meeting of the old and the new guard. Get a couple of people in, in the production or writer's room who, who have experience with doing the sort of golden age Star Trek, like a Ronald Moore or era Stephen Baird, or even like Brian Fuller, who they actually did have initially on a, to work on Discovery, but he was kicked out of the production. And that's all I'm going to say on that for now. Probably for pointing out how stupid it was. Then have sort of some of the, the next generation, no pun intended, of, of the, you know, the younger talent there. So the, the old guard can kind of teach them what they need to know about how the franchise works, how the writing process works for Star Trek. Because it is a, a fairly unique style of storytelling. It's not just space adventure stuff. Like I say, there's a lot more talking about character development and personal events and even these greater social issues and the intelligent exploration of them that has made the show stand out so much. I think if you could get those two together, then you would sort of have this recipe of being able to like pass the torch on through the ages to teams of writers working on the franchise. But right now, all we have is sort of a sort of shallow cover band working on it. And yeah, like I think until they manage to do that, it's not going to work. And hopefully the gap between Beyond and whatever they're making next will be enough that people might be ready to give it another shot. But we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. You also kind of need someone there. You're going to need kind of a name in either writing or direction to help kind of pull people into this, I think. You need someone of a little bit of substance. So I'm sure like within Hollywood, you can find people that would love to write for Star Trek. Like Ronald Moore, he got his start working on Star Trek just because he was an aspiring writer. He really loved the original series and he just wrote scripts and submitted them to Paramount. And like they liked enough of his scripts that he got hired on as a permanent writer. And he's done some of the best work with the franchise. And he's gone on to do other great things like the Battlestar Galactica reboot, which I think is one of the best science fiction shows, if not shows ever made. Yeah, I very much enjoy the vast majority of the Battlestar Galactica reboot. But just like saying, well, we want to make a new Star Trek movie or show. Well, just get a bunch of writers in a room and have them go. It's like, that's probably not going to go well. It also depends on what the agenda is. If they go into it, like if the force is female, but it's Star Trek, it, nothing they do is going to work. Nothing. If they go into it and like, we really want to recapture what was great about the Star Trek that everyone knows and remembers, which is the television show and TNG then I think they're on the right track. If the agenda is we want to take this Star Trek, but you know we want to bring it into modern times with modern sensibilities, this thing is going to fall on its face again. And the conclusion will be not that we made a poor decision by doing all of that. It'll be, well, Star Trek just doesn't work in the 2020s, which is not the right conclusion. And in defense of the writers, and I'll even extend that to a lot of the current crew, is like, this is a difficult franchise to handle. Is it? Yeah. Well, one, you have to deal with, like, the future of Star Trek and what it means to people, as well as, you know, you have to be a bit more exploratory. And, you know, like, it, it's this isn't sort of the classical storytelling, but also in that you do have this giant franchise of pre-existing stuff to deal with. This isn't like you could just watch three seasons of the original series and, okay, I understand Star Trek now. You now have seven seasons of TNG, seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, seven seasons of Voyager, four seasons of Enterprise that all have to be kept straight. You're dealing in moral and ethical quandaries set in a space setting with explorers. How hard is this? Apparently pretty hard. <laughs> if, if Modern Trek is to be used as an example. The other thing that comes to managing a franchise when it comes to this, you have to manage fan expectations. You have to deal with that. So in that respect, yeah, it's kind of a pain, especially when you have something that's actually good. It's easy to churn out an infinite number of Fast and Furious movies. 
because there's no expectations for this other than vroom and explosion, right? Any idiot can do this. Star Trek actually has a bit of expectation associated with it as a property in terms of what it brings and what it does. So, yeah, managing all that stuff can be a bit of a pain in the butt. It's not an, not the easiest task. Look, ask any sophomore in high school to write a Fast and the Furious script. They could do that very, very quickly, very, very easily, and it wouldn't be all that distinguishable from what the professionals churn out for Fast 9, assuming it ever actually gets released. So, any any final thoughts on the Kelvin timeline films? Kill it. Kill it with fire. Already done. <laughs> They're an exercise in studio excess, poor decision-making, demonstrate a catastrophic lack of understanding, bookended by some good visuals, some stellar performances. Good music. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not talking about the Beastie Boys thing. I know, I know. But but the actual orchestral score of the films I thought was quite well done. I agree with you. It it, It is. That's what actually makes the Beastie Boys so jarring, the level of quality is so clearly lesser i would say some of the themes to these films could actually stand aside the classic themes to other star treks and that's a high compliment yeah i'd agree with that so you've got some decent elements but unfortunately the foundation for every movie whether there's spoken dialogue or not your foundation is writing and if your writing's bad there's a real finite amount that visual style and even performance is going to do to make up for that With Star Wars, which is kind of the other big sci-fi franchise, right? Star Wars, Star Trek, those are the big two. Like, you know, you can get by a lot more on the visuals, the set pieces, right? You know, the Battle of Hoth, the Death Star Trench run, the speeder bike chase, the pod race. Like, you know, these are all very iconic, pushed boundaries of special effects technology. Not to say that there's not, like, good storytelling in Star Wars. Like, I'm not trying to say that Star Wars is for the mouth-breathing, uneducated masses. There's there's some good stuff in there. But, yeah, Star Trek is a lot more the, the heady, you know, roots in more, like, literary science fiction type type stuff whereas like if you ask someone like what are the best star trek episodes or moments they're probably not gonna talk about fights as much almost certainly not which is one of the strengths of star trek it is very designed to engage you on a more than purely visual stimulus level and let's be clear outside of modern trek and the kelvin movies there's there's plenty of dumb bad star trek like it this this isn't a isn't a series that bats a thousand or Please listen to our reviews of the other movie entries that we've done. There's plenty of those that we go into. Yeah, remember when Dr. Crusher had sex with a ghost? Yep, that's a thing. Or Tom Paris and Captain Janeway flew at warp too fast and super evolved into salamanders and had babies. Gross. Yeah, that was also a thing. It's not all good, guys. They can't all be city on the edge of forever. But when they hit that level, it's so good and so worth it. Yeah. And I miss that. It's been so long. Very true. So, thank you all for staying with us. Uh, we've done all the Star Trek movies now. Is there anything we want to plug? All of our Spreaker feed can be found at Spreaker.com slash show slash Rattledge dash in dash broadcasting. So that's Spreaker.com slash show slash Rattledge in broadcasting. And you'll find all of our shows, all of our TV parties, all of our Damn Good Hollywood, which are movie reviews, all of our Metal Hammer of Dooms. Whatever boxing and wrestling we're doing at the time, it's all going to be there. There's Long Road to Ruins that deal with Star Trek. There's old movie reviews that deal with Star Trek. There's Dave's stuff that deals with Star Trek. So if you like this, and why wouldn't 
listen to and you want to hear the individual movies when they were contemporary reviewed or if you want to hear me and Jason Offit talking about the Spock trilogy just the Spock trilogy and you want to compare that to our discussion with me Andrew Robert and Dave talking about all of the Star Trek Prime movies uh, that's all in our archives found at Spreaker.com slash show slash Rattledge in broadcasting uh, you can find me hosting the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. That is on a different service. You have to just, if you look up 411 Ground and Pound, I guarantee you it'll come up. That is my weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. So if you're interested in that particular sport, please do give it a listen. I appreciate that. Most Saturdays, I cover MMA events for 411 Mania, so you can find me in the MMA zone over there. Fridays, I cover WWE SmackDown. So if you're interested in professional wrestling, you can find me covering that particular entity. I also cover MLW Fusion on Wednesdays and AEW's Dark Elevation on Mondays because I hate myself. (laughs) So you can find me doing all of those things in addition to hosting Damn You Hollywood on the occasions that it actually goes off when there are movies, contributing to the occasional TV party, contributing here whenever I'm interested or anyone is interested in my thoughts. I'm happy to come on, so I'm fairly prolific. I'm not as prolific as Mark who will be going into the woods to live deliberately at some point in the near future, I assume. He's just, he's podcasted himself into the ground, and we will see him after the Odin sleep. So thank you all very much for uh, coming on with me, and to you, the listener, thank you very much for sticking with us till now. I hope you enjoyed it. If not, why would you still be listening? We'll be back at some point in the future. Until then, live long and prosper.